is Venus with a mirror. It features a nude young woman who's seated with a hand across her chest as she peers at her likeness, or beauty, in a mirror being held up by Cupid, who takes the form of a little boy. There are two little boys here, both representing Cupid. One holds up the mirror for the young woman to admire herself, and the other places a crown on her head. The woman seems at peace, and not threatened in any way at all. What this painting on the left suggests is that the absence of grown men with sexual desires in the scene, instead using two little boys as Cupid fawning over Venus, allows innocence conducive to female beauty being appreciated and undisturbed in the absence of corruption by way of desire. One of the Cupid figures puts a crown on the woman's head, signifying she's a queen, and the other holds up a mirror for her, signifying to her that he knows how beautiful she is and wants her to see it. Neither boy is attempting to gain anything from her sexually, and so there's no need for corruption. It says that little boys love women for who they are and allow them to feel comfortable in their beauty because they don't pose a threat due to sexual desire. But just like we looked from the arid desert painting on the left at Marion's work, in comparison to the lush waterway painting on the right, the addition of one element, growth, changes the result drastically. So in the paintings at Marion's work, the change from the desert on the left to the lush waterway on the right was due to the addition of water. That growth changed the entire landscape. With the paintings in the motel parlor, the one on the left depicts two little boys innocently showing a grown woman how beautiful she is in the absence of the corruption of sexual desire. But just like there was growth between the desert painting and the lush waterway painting that caused the change between the two, we get the same here. In the painting on the right in the parlor depicting Susanna and the elders, the young woman is in nearly the same state of undress, but instead of being relaxed as two boys innocently adore her, she's reaching up to the sky for God's help because two grown men are in the process of attempting to rape her due to sexual desire. So their growth, meaning the two men, from being innocent little boys in the painting on the left to being grown men with uncontrollable sexual desires in the painting on the right, suggests that little boys growing up is the greatest threat to a woman. So, that of course runs parallel to the theme of, quote, a boy's best friend is his mother, end quote. Norman's mother is attempting to keep him a boy to prevent him from being corrupted by sexual desire. If she can do that, he remains the depictions of Cupid in the painting on the left, adoring her in his innocence. If he doesn't, though, he'll succumb to sexual desire, like the two grown men shown in the painting at right. The result of this makes Norman a grown man physically, but a child emotionally. That's his issue. 
Now, I could go on and on about these paintings, but let's move forward in the narrative here with those thoughts in mind. Plus, what we really need to lend our awareness to is the fact that Norman is represented by Cupid in the painting Venus with a Mirror. Cupid is the son of Venus, and like Norman, is going to protect his mother. Cupid, while not in this painting, is normally depicted carrying a bow and arrow that dictates anybody shot with it will be overcome by uncontrollable desire. So moving forward, if we see Cupid with his bow and arrow and in the context of someone on the verge of being overcome by desire, death is looming. Uncontrollable desire combined with ignorance is a cocktail leading to tragedy. So if death comes by way of Cupid, it will be due to indulging tragic circumstance. Of course, that's going to happen, but we'll get to that. For now, I could go ramble on and on about additional symbolic implications within the paintings, but it's a bit exhaustive for a single podcast episode. So, let's move along. Now, Marion's car has been submerged in the swamp, and her cabin at the base motel has been cleaned. It's like she was never there. Norman believes he has redirected her light source in a manner that allows him to avoid being detected. But again, evolution is going to swarm. In a sense, we're all detectives. We seek truth. And so anyone with an interest in Marion, by way of resources, whether it's money, love, sex, or anything else, is going to seek the truth about their loss. The rich guy wants to know where the hell his money went, so he hires a private detective to represent him. Lila Crane, Marion's sister, is family, and by extension of that, doesn't want to lose the love or companionship of her sister. Sam Loomis, her lover, obviously cares for Marion and has an intimate relationship with her, so he's going to want to solve this riddle as well. They'll reconstruct the path of her light source with investigation in order to learn the truth, a.k.a. what happened. Accordingly, when the car disposal scene at the swamp ends with Norman smiling at his perceived success in concealing the truth, we transition to the next scene showing Sam Loomis, Marion's boyfriend, writing on stationery in the back room of his hardware store in the town of Fairvale, California, which we know from Norman's comments when Marion checked in is only 15 miles down the road. Of course, she didn't know that until after she stopped at the motel, so the information didn't save her. The rain had gotten so bad on the road to her destination that Marion couldn't see clearly and had to pull over. It's a simple metaphor describing her problems mounting to a point she had to stop what she was doing and reconsider. She did. Unfortunately, it was too late. So, as we transition into Sam writing this letter, that theme needs to resonate throughout his words. Whatever he wants to accomplish through writing this letter has to clearly tell us it's too late for that. Accordingly, this is how the letter reads. Dearest right as always, Marion, I'm sitting in this tiny back room, 
which isn't big enough for both of us, and suddenly it looks big enough for both of us. So what if we're poor and cramped and miserable? At least we'll be happy. If you haven't come to your senses and still... But he stops there and flips the sheet of paper over. He continues writing, but we don't see the words. We understand what's happening. Sam has reflected on the incident with Marion when they last met, about how he suggested they couldn't be together because he was bogged down by alimony and his father's debts. He realizes those things didn't stop them from being together. It was actually his pride and associated emotional immaturity. He felt like less than a man, with the reality being they would have to live in this cramped stockroom at the store. But the truth, for an emotionally mature mind, is that if they love each other, it won't matter if they live there until he gets out of debt. What matters is the love they share. So Sam's explicit expression of this signifies something to the audience. He's changed. And now that we see it, we have his back. We hurt for this tragedy. Like Marion, and even the words that end the letter, he's now come to his senses. But it's too late. Yet, since he chose to change, a.k.a. mature, now he's going to seek the truth. He's operating from the standpoint of a need, not a want. He needs to be with Marion. That's the right thing to do. Wanting to shield himself from the shame of his financial situation was wrong. Like Marion, he was running away and learned nobody really runs away from anything. So, he isn't going to run anymore. Sam is going to fight for the truth. So here we are in the front of the hardware store. The male clerk at the register is speaking to a woman who's checking out a can of insect killer and pondering aloud if it's painless. She states, quote, They don't tell you if it's going to be painless. And I say, insect or man, it should always be painless. End quote. She's reading the back of the can to try to learn this information. Of course, the clerk has no idea. They don't label insect poison that way, especially back in 1960. But what really seems to be happening here is that we're left to wonder if her concern is because the poisoning she's looking to do is actually a man and not insects, and she wants it to be painless for that reason. It seems like perhaps it's a bit of humor to break the constant tension of the sequence that preceded it with Marion's murder and Norman covering it up. But in reality, this poisoning is relevant to something that happened in the past in our story. We won't learn about it until later, but it puts the possibility in our mind. It's foreshadowing something. Now, this is when Lila Crane enters. She meets Sam, believing her sister might be here with him. Sam tells her she's not, and that he hasn't heard from her. He wants to know what's wrong, why Lila has come all this way to California. Now, right from the start of this scene, and even before, when Sam is in the back room, we notice a huge abundance of rakes and garden hose for sale. They sit in racks, with the business end of each at the top. This makes them quite obvious, 
and they seem to look like claws. But what would be more accurate, given the specificity of earlier symbolism, is that they look like the talons of predatory birds. They appear over the characters' heads at various points throughout the scene. Now that Marion is gone, however, and we know Sam is single, while Lila has made no mention of his significant other, the film has to explore their chemistry. It's something we're naturally curious about. So the first thing I notice is that Lila is clearly more mature than Marion, and now Sam has matured from earlier as well. They interact with a mutual level of concern for the missing woman, and it seems as though they're going to be able to team up in an effort to find her. But we wonder if they can be romantic partners. Well, as they're having this initial conversation, there's a single large bag of peat moss with big letters on the package in the background. It's the only one there, so it must be there for a reason. Of course, it could also be there for a number of reasons. Check it out. The first five letters of Lila's full name, Lila Crane, spell lilac. A lilac is a bush that blooms pretty flowers on it and can generally be grown in any type of soil, but sometimes requires adding peat moss to aerate the soil. And why is that done? Well, additional aeration prevents excess rainwater from collecting and remaining beneath the surface. Lilacs don't respond well to being flooded like that. And so, guess what letters are left in Lila's last name when you remove the C and add it to her first name? Without the C, the remainder of the name is pronounced rain. So Sam having this bag of peat moss or fertilizer in the store says that he has what Lila needs. He has what it takes to make her soil fertile for proper growth. In the same way marriage between two people allows their partnership to flourish by combining their resources, the same is true here. These two could grow together. But wait, I'm sure that sounds crazy, right? Well, consider this then. Their names, Sam and Lila. Those names are often shortened versions of their formal counterparts. In the 1949 C.C. DeMille film, Samson and Delilah, Delilah is the sister of Samson's wife, and Samson ends up with her. Why does it happen? The woman he's in love with gets killed while he's off trying to repay financial debts when he should be with her. Due to that, he winds up with her sister. Sound familiar? Now, those are just interesting considerations and not necessarily the intention Hitchcock had in mind for this scene. But here's the part that's unmistakable. The rakes and hoes that signify talons are begging us to look for other clues. So when we think of talons, we think of predatory birds and recall the stuffed birds. We established that the stuffed crow over Marion's shoulder in the parlor represents Norma Bates. So as we see this huge, obvious bag of peat moss, we know this substance is prominently utilized for the purpose of mummification. In combination with the rakes and hose 
aka talons, surrounding it in the store, it's telling us the stuffed bird is mummified. So if Norma is that bird, she's a mummy. It's foreshadowing the truth about what she is. But if Norma is mummified, how did she get that way, and who did it to her? Well, peat bogs, which are common in North America, naturally mummify human remains over time if they're submerged. So what we need to do is try to remember if one of our characters knows the location of a bog near Norma's home and has used it to redirect light. Obviously, the last scene we just left has Norman at a swamp or bog watching Marion's car sink below the surface. So, we know Norman mummified his mother. Now, this is when a man walks into the hardware store and introduces himself as Arbogast, a private detective hired by the rich guy to find Marion and his money. He followed Lila here and wants to know what information she and Sam can provide. It soon becomes apparent to him Marion isn't here, and the three of them will have to work together to find her. Now that we know that, Hitchcock is going to foreshadow the result we'll get. Lila and Sam stand together on the right of the frame, and behind their heads we see several rakes looking like talons. The talons represent the stuffed bird here, so we know the bird, a.k.a. Norma, or mother, is going to come after them with the intention of them being her prey. On the left side of the frame, the private detective leans against the sales counter. To one side of him is a large scale, signifying his presence as the scales of justice. Again, he's leaning back against the counter at this time, and in the background, high on a wall, we see a collection of knives. One of the knives is placed on the wall, pointing downward at the right side of his face. So we should expect, at some point, for him to be attacked with a knife to the right side of his face while leaning back, and due to the fact he's seeking truth and justice represented by the scale. So, the detective realizes he needs to keep looking, but is convinced Marion is in the area. He goes out to search some local establishments, especially the hotels. Now, the last thing I want to mention about this scene is related to the potential romantic dynamic between Lila and Sam. We learn pretty quickly that Lila is a bit strong-willed and hot-headed in comparison to Marion, but that disposition lends her a greater amount of maturity, so it's a nice fit. Sam, on the other hand, is more measured in comparison. He seems to have the power to cool her jets a bit. So, in one moment, Lila is going off with this intense dialogue regarding her sister's whereabouts, while Sam is remaining cool and calming her. At that moment, directly over her head in the background, is a sign that reads, Heaters. Since Sam is much taller than her, there's a sign in the background, right in front of his eyes, that reads, Coolers. Of course, those are two opposite values. But in romance, there's a saying that opposites attract, because we often seek those who complement our shortcomings 
in a way that lends itself to being complete as a unit. And we get that feeling here. We know there are different seasons of weather. Sometimes you need heat, others you need cooling. It's complementary. And we realize something. These two people could work together romantically. It doesn't have to be explored in the script. Just the potential for it suffices. And the reason is that we just need to know they can work together to find Marion. If we think they could be a couple, it just raises the stakes when danger arrives. Of course, without spoiling the ending, we do learn this chemistry is what saves the day. The climax of the film requires Sam and Lila to cooperate in defeating the evil killer. Anyhow, the private investigator checks local boarding houses, hotels, and similar to try to find Marion, but he comes up empty. That's when he discovers the Bates Motel. When he pulls up in his car, Norman is seen seated outside, eating candy corn in a chair. He's going to try that same boyishly charming, innocent approach he attempted to great success with Marion. But this is a detective. He's specifically been hired to sniff out redirected light. He knows when others are lying and manipulating. Norman doesn't realize that's who the guy is at first, but soon enough, he'll be just as paranoid as Marion on the road with the stolen money earlier. And unlike Marion, we know Norman isn't willing to change. So he'll have to keep trying to redirect light and indulging the physical manifestation of his emotional issue as the pressure mounts. And that's the reason evolution swarms. It creates an endgame. Think of playing a video game, how you progress through more and more difficult obstacles to get where you're going, to get to the next level. Once the number, strength, and speed of the antagonistic forces you encounter becomes too great, you succumb. So whereas Marion couldn't stand the onslaught of the rain, and pulled over, reconsidered, and decided to change to rid herself of the pressure of the oncoming antagonistic forces, we know Norman is unwilling to change. So no matter how great the antagonism gets, he isn't going to stop until those antagonists physically force the truth to light by confronting and stopping him. The detective, Sam and Lila, will attempt to correct the redirected light by asking questions, finding truth, and confining the source of the corrupted light, a.k.a. lies. So, Norman is about to get bombarded with questions, and his charm will fade as he fails to provide the honest answers the private investigator is seeking to hear. Now, the concept of redirected light, essentially meaning manipulation of circumstance to conceal truth, can have a literal interpretation. Often someone is actually trying to manipulate perception through the use or misuse of lighting. And a private detective would be keen to pick up on those types of things, right? So that's why Arbogast pulls his car up to the office entrance where Norman is seated outside the base motel. As he drives past, he notices the neon sign is off. So the private detective gets out of his vehicle and says good evening to Norman. Norman, thinking the guy's a customer, says that he's always forgetting to turn the sign on. Arbogast says he's been to many hotels recently, 
and this is the only one that looks like it's trying to hide from the world. Norman replies, quote, To tell you the truth, I didn't forget to turn the sign on. It just doesn't seem like there's any use anymore. End quote. Obviously, that's going to draw suspicion. If you turn the light off, nobody at all will think you're open, guaranteeing zero business. And we know he doesn't really think that way. When Marion arrived, the sign was turned on. So, Arbogast follows Norman into the office under the premise of wanting to ask him something. He says he's tracking someone from Phoenix and wants to know if she might have stopped there. He says it's a private matter and the family wants to forgive her. He holds out her picture and Norman doesn't even look at it. He just says, well, no one stopped here for weeks. The PI asks him to please look at the picture. Norman complies and then says he doesn't recognize the woman. The detective doesn't believe him, and continues crafting his own narrative by saying Marion could have registered under a different name. So this is a tactic where you lead the suspect into denials that later have to be recanted because they conflict with known facts. In the process of admitting the information was a lie, and thereby recanting it, the suspect is forced into a concession that's a little closer to the truth. Each time a suspect puts up a roadblock to the truth and is caught in the lie, they have to concede a bit more. It's an end game leading to the truth. Norman is already feeling that pressure, and in the same way he stuttered around Marion, he'll start to do the same now. So the detective is suggesting Marion could have signed in under an alias. He clearly wants to see the guest register, and Norman senses that in the subtext, so he replies by offering the notion that he doesn't bother to have guests register these days, meaning due to lack of business. He says he's dropped the formalities. That's when he turns on the neon sign outside. He goes on to tell the detective he had a couple come in last week and said if the light hadn't been on, they would have thought the hotel was old and deserted. So right then, he gets caught in a lie. He previously said nobody had stopped there in weeks. The detective notices, calls him out on it, and Norman is forced to make another concession, bringing us closer to the truth. He lied again, and since he told the detective he didn't bother to have guests sign in anymore, he's aware he has to show his cards. He needs to show the guest book. The detective knows her name, or alias, is in there. But Norman can't stop redirecting light. He needs to manipulate a circumstance in which the truth isn't revealed. So he's lying in situations where it's obvious. He has no other choice. It's really sad that his emotional ailment is this debilitating. On that note, he tells the detective there's nobody signed in the book, meaning recently. But the detective has a handwriting sample from Marion and matches it to the name Marie Samuels in the guest register, proving Norman a liar once again. But he never calls Norman a liar, and even tells the young man he doesn't think he's lying. All the while, he just keeps pressuring Norman into these concessions, one after another. So here's the next concession. Norman got caught in that lie about nobody being in the guest register, which leads the detective to show him Marion's picture again 
to be sure he doesn't remember her. It's obvious she was here, and Norman knows he has to concede that. So this time, instead of saying he's never seen her, he instantly acknowledges that he remembers her. The detective wants to know more, but by the time he asks what day she left the motel, and Norman knows she never did because he covered up her murder, he begins to stutter very badly. So Norman goes on to say that she didn't make any phone calls while she was there, and the detective responds by asking if he spent the night with her. Norman quickly says no. The detective then asks if he didn't spend the night with her, how he knows that she didn't make any calls. So Norman lied again. He doesn't know. The detective realizes direct questioning will produce a lie, but when Norman is called out on the lie, he'll then have to concede something to get us closer to the truth. Now, the beautiful thing about this process is that Norman, despite unwillingness to change, still has a want and a need. His want is to continue to hide the truth about his mental illness so he can go on living alone with his mother in this isolated place. But his need is to bring the ugly truth to the surface and end this total madness because a lot of people have been hurt in the process. So, even though Norman refuses to indulge the emotional change required to shed his want for his need, his internal desire, so to speak, is still to have it happen. That's why we get the concessions. The lies he gives to direct questioning are him responding from the perspective of the want. The concessions come from the need. So we're actually watching a battle between the want and the need, not just Norman and the detective. But if someone who is unwilling to change makes too many concessions and allows others to get too close to the truth, he's likely going to shut that down, and very quickly. And the reason is that making his own concessions to the whole truth would qualify as emotional change. Norman can't do that. He'll force others to physically change him. So what is the breaking point at which Norman will cut off the interview? What is the subject that will cause him to stop making concessions? Let's watch it happen. Norman tells the story of how he made Marion a sandwich and she ate it with him back in the parlor. He starts opening up about the situation. And it's because through this difficult questioning, he's feeling relief by getting closer to the truth, a.k.a. shedding the want for the need. But the fear of losing the external want is too great for someone who's unwilling to change so he has a line that he won't cross. Anyhow, the detective asks Norman if Marion is still at the motel. Norman laughs a bit and says no. Why should she be? Arbogast looks skeptical and asks if she might be in one of the cabins. But Norman is telling the truth so he offers to take the detective with him through the cabins in order to change the linens. Arbogast agrees, but when they walk out the door, Norman goes toward the cabins, but the detective, who follows him out, turns the opposite direction toward the house. In the process, Arbogast looks back 
and sees Norman reaching for the door handle on cabin one, but then pulls his hand back and continues walking to another cabin. That's when Arbogast looks up at the house and sees a light on in a second floor bedroom. Norma Bates is in the window, or at least her silhouette. Norman backtracks to the detective, and Arbogast asks if anybody else is home. Norman says no, but the detective says there's somebody sitting right up in the window. Norman stutters badly and denies anybody is there. The detective reiterates that there's clearly someone in the window. The detective says take a look because he knows Norman will have to concede the truth that she's up there. Yet, Norman refuses to look. He just stutters again after he says it must be his mother. And then he stutters even worse, trying to say the woman is an invalid. The detective realizes that this is his kryptonite, and that Norman is hiding something, but also believes the elderly woman might have information about Marion Crane. But Norman also just lied about being here alone. So he modifies this statement by saying living with his mother is practically like living alone. He knows where this is going and doesn't like it because it's getting closer and closer to the truth. The detective is going to ask Norman if he can talk to Mother. Of course, he does and starts pressing Norman about speaking to his mom and we can see Norman reaching the breaking point. He finally says, Mr. Arbogast, I think I've talked to you all I want to. Arbogast protests, but Norman says it would be better if he left. So the truth about Norman's emotional issue that he's hiding equates to mother. He can't let anyone get to his mother, a.k.a. the truth. If they do, he has to kill them to keep the secret. As we watch the movie unfold, that's exactly what's going to happen. So, the truth will rise to the surface through physical means rather than emotional change. Someone will get to his mother and see the truth, and he'll also be stopped from killing them in the process. The entire event will be conducted through physical change, but it will still shed Norman's material external want in favor of his internal emotional need. It's tragedy, but this protagonist still has an identifiable arc. So, anyway, the detective takes the hint. Norman isn't talking anymore, and he leaves. When the man takes off, we get something really interesting. Norman walks over to the windowsill outside the office and sits on the edge of it to watch the detective go. He starts to smile in that same way he did at the swamp when the car sunk, but this time, it has just a bit more of a delirious, evil presentation to it. What's happening here is that Hitchcock is slowly conditioning us to not identify with him anymore as the protagonist in any way. Enough truth has been revealed that we're on the verge of empathizing with Arbogast, Lila, and Sam in this matter. And the reason is that, as they chisel away at the facade that hides Norman's secret, we want to know what it is as well. 
So by making Norman seem as though he's enjoying all of this with his coy little smiles, he becomes less worthy of empathy. We easily identified with the scrambling, speechless Norman who found Marion murdered in the shower and covered up the crime to protect his ill mother so he didn't have to be alone in this world without her. She's all he has. But he's been enjoying this charade more and more, and now he's smiling because he knows the detective is going to come back to speak with Norma. And when he does, Norman is going to let him walk right into that trap. Nobody can get to Mother. The secret must be kept. If Arbogast goes in that house, he's dead. And that's what the smile is all about. This is a trap. But what Norman can't see is that he's stepping into his own private trap. Remember that from earlier? Marion suggested that sometimes we deliberately step into our own private traps. And that's what Norman is doing. This is a war he can't win in the end. He can't just keep killing everyone who comes looking for the last person. The antagonistic forces will continue to swarm in greater concentration until he's finally caught. And he needs that. But he has to make them come force him to shed the want. That's the only way. He's not going to change emotionally. They have to force it out of him physically. Basically, he's putting the noose around his own neck. And Hitchcock even tells us that. As Norman sits there on the edge of the windowsill smiling, looking evil, it seems an odd place to just stop and sit, especially at night. But then we notice what's behind him. The pull cords on the window shades inside the office are long and straight with a circular ring at the bottom for a thumb or finger. And what each of them looks like is a taut rope with a noose at the bottom. Norman is sitting in the exact position needed to make it appear he's hanging from a noose. And this evil smile, combined with the symbolism of hanging himself, shows the contradictory nature of his desire to protect Mother and his desire to be stopped. But Hitchcock realized the need for two window shade cords in that scene. When you look at Norman, he's unnecessarily on the far right side of the frame, considering no one else is on camera at this time. But Hitchcock wants to focus on the noose, and with Norman's body in the way, you can't see the ring that would be around his neck. So he puts Norman on the far right in front of the window and centers the left window in the frame because nobody is blocking the circular ring on the cord. So you're looking directly at the cord on the left window and noticing how much it appears to be like a noose with that circular ring. And then you turn to Norman Bates and see the cord running down his back behind him. Now, this is where the scene transitions to Arbogast going to a payphone to call Lila Crane and report what he knows. I happen to think it's a weak point in the script, and they should have rewritten as much as necessary to eliminate the problem. Nonetheless, the film is a masterpiece, so what the hell do I know, right? Anyway, the issue is that Arbogast is about to pick up the phone, have a one-sided conversation, meaning we don't hear the recipient of the call speak, and unload 
all sorts of exposition on Lila and Sam because he's about to get killed and they won't be able to proceed as needed without being enlightened with the information. There's no action, no suspense, no drama. It's an exposition dump, plain and simple. There's no other way to say it. It's bad writing. The film succeeds despite that, though, obviously. So, Arbogast is literally going to make this call and then go right back to the Bates Motel. Nothing happens in terms of a sudden revelation that necessitates him returning. But Arbogast is going to make this call and turn right around to go back anyway. Worst of all, he doesn't even work for Lila. She didn't hire him, but he calls her. So on one hand, I clearly see the path to correcting that issue in the screenplay is a rocky road full of bumps and obstacles, but I think it would have been worth it. They'll try to cover this up, however, by inserting a speculative narrative offered by the sheriff that Arbogast found the money and kept it for himself. But that's forced. There's no reason to believe that, and also no reason to speculate it happened in the first place. Nothing in his behavior suggested that he had any interest in deception. Anyhow, the detective tells Lila everything he knows, even that he believes her sister stayed in cabin one. He tells her he's going back to the motel, and he'll meet her and Sam at the hardware store in an hour. But he isn't going to make it there. There's a trap waiting for him. But again, this exposition dump is weak writing, and it's going to have a half-life moving forward. So Hitchcock will need to make several more bad choices on his way to correcting the issue. Now, the problem starts with the detective making the phone call, and the only way to end it is to kill Arbogast, then have Lila and Sam assume his role of playing detective, letting them move forward on the strength of their own discoveries. So, let's map the fallout from it moving forward. Arbogast gets in his car and drives back to the motel. Now, Norman already told him he'd need a warrant to go up into the house and isn't permitted to speak to his mother. Norman also explicitly stated that he wasn't willing to speak to the detective anymore. And Arbogast realizes this is a dead end and has to leave. But now he's going back without learning anything new or having a different angle to take on the questioning and also knows Norman isn't going to talk to him. Norman has made it perfectly clear he sits around this place day in and day out, alone, so the detective has no reason to believe that when he returns, Norman will be doing anything but sitting at the office like he always does. And if that's the case, what good does it do the detective to return? Norman won't talk, and he won't allow his mother to talk to the detective. So Armagast has no reason to go back right now, especially because Norman doesn't have to talk to him, and neither does his mother. This situation isn't organic in terms of how an investigation goes. He took action to go there. Norman reacted by shutting him down when Armagast inquired about his mother. Armagast, again, 
has no reason to believe Norman will be away when he arrives, thereby allowing him to pursue questioning Norma. What he should expect is for Norman to still be there, shutting him down instantly again and forcing him to leave once again. But that shitty scene they inserted at the payphone in service of an exposition dump to help Sam and Lila forces this poor logic in the next scene. It even causes Hitchcock to engage poor choices in the cinematography. Watch it happen. And if you're a writer, you probably know what horrifying element is going to be used to manipulate a scenario that allows Arbogast to investigate further, even though Norman refuses to let him. That's right. You know what it is. Hitchcock serves up a coincidence. It's hard for me to believe that he stooped to this, but he did. So here we go. The scene transitions to the base motel, but it's not the office we're looking at. It's the dark cabins instead. Suddenly, we see a white towel in the darkness on the walkway in front of the cabins. Norman, at this time, is finally changing the linens he was going to change while the detective shadowed him earlier. So as Norman walks along the row of cabins toward the end and disappears among them, Arbogast's car suddenly pulls up. He parks back by the far cabins, rather than right in front of the office, which actually doesn't conceal his vehicle in any way. Why did he park there? He's driving a white car. It can obviously be seen from the office and the house. And then, since Hitchcock decided on this shot, he has Arbogast slide all the way across the bench seat in the car to get out the passenger side, just to accommodate the shot. You can't do that. You can't have a character do something inorganic just to serve your shot. It's manipulative, and obviously a product of what preceded it. But Hitchcock puts the camera right outside the driver's door, so he can't have Arbogast get out there because he'll block the view. In truth, the shot is supposed to serve the story, and not the other way around. And of course, the logic just doesn't work. So as Norman disappears into the far cabins with the linens, Arbogast gets out and goes to the office where the light is on. Arbogast pulls up with his headlights off, but closes his door normally. Norman would be able to hear that from anywhere in the area of the cabins, and perhaps even up at the house. So the detective walks up to the office and looks back in the direction Norman went, to the far cabins. It's here we wonder if Hitchcock was insinuating that the detective waited with his lights off intentionally and made his move when Norman passes. He even gives a sneaky look in the direction Norman went as he's about to enter the office. But then he walks into the office, calls out for Norman, and waits for an answer. So, we realize he didn't really see Norman and wasn't waiting for Norman to pass to make his move. It was just a coincidence they missed each other. Either way, this is really bad writing that should have never found its way into the film. But that exposition dump in the previous scene necessitates such an action. Hitchcock has to manipulate a reason 
and method for this man's return in a situation where he just left under the pretense that Norman wasn't going to talk and wasn't going to let him in the house. He knows Norman's still there, so why does he go back? He shouldn't. It's forced. He needs to learn something new that changes the situation and then return with that new knowledge as use for leverage over Norman to get what he wants, just like he forced the concessions by calling out Norman's lies. But if Norman isn't talking anymore, that's a dead end. Arbogast, in reality, needs to regroup, investigate other avenues, and find that new leverage to get Norman to lie and subsequently concede entry to the home afterward. If that isn't possible, he has to prove enough to get law enforcement inside the house. But he doesn't do that. Hitchcock wants to have his cake and eat it too. He wants Arbogast to be able to deliver the information to Sam and Lila, but also die. You can't do that organically, and it shows in the result. The following scene is confusing, poorly shot, absent of sound logic, and desperate. Yet, it shouldn't be. So, anyhow, Arbogast calls out for Norman in the office, but gets no response. At that point, he eyes the parlor and back, and takes a look inside. The first thing he sees is the stuffed crow on the wall that represents Norman's mother. Then he notices the owl with wings spread looming over the room. It's highly predatory, foreshadowing what's to come. Right then, the detective notices a safe on the floor of the parlor. Its door is open. Of course, he's thinking about the money Marion stole, so he leans down and looks inside. There's nothing in the safe. So Arbogast walks out of the office and peers up at the house on the hill. He sees Norma's bedroom lights on and decides to walk up the steps to the house. He finds the door open and enters. That's when we get a great shot of the staircase leading up to the second floor. It has so much symbolic power because it represents the uphill climb to the truth that every protagonist faces in a film narrative and, of course, in this film, Norman's mother, whose bedroom is upstairs, equates to the truth. So, in the same way antagonistic forces try to keep the protagonist from climbing the mountain to reach their goal of getting to the truth at the top, this staircase replicates that entire process in one simple static shot. It looms over us. In the same way we desperately want to find that emotional truth at the top of the mountain in our own lives, we also want it here for the protagonist because he's essentially us. We, as he surely does, have fears about what might happen if we indulge that adversity and climb to the top of that mountain to unveil the truth. The staircase calls to us. We saw the light, a.k.a. truth, was apparent in the windows from outside in the darkness. And as I said previously, the halfway point is the point of no return for the protagonist, so to speak. It's a doorway leading to commitment on the other side. If you cross that threshold, you've committed. Now, the first half of this climb in question, 
for Arbogast is from the flat ground outside of the motel office that leads up the exterior staircase on the hillside. That first half of the climb is outside the house. In the same way, the protagonist's journey through their narrative has the first half of their climb in the script being that of an exterior path related to the material one. Once he makes it halfway along the climb to the truth, however, meaning to the house, the front door represents the halfway mark or point of no return. If he enters, passing through into the house, he's committed. And of course, he's then inside the house, which represents the internal or emotional need we find the protagonist embracing in the second half of the journey to discover truth. So, as our own protagonist in life, we fear the stairs. We see Arbogast hesitate, and there's good reason. Like I said, the climb up the exterior stairs was done without hesitation. He was operating in service of the want, regardless of consequence. That's what protagonists do in the first half. But now we've crossed the threshold of the halfway point, symbolized by the front door, and the second half of the climb, representing the internal need on the staircase inside, is ahead of us. But, as discussed, going into the second half of the script, or narrative, or climb, requires emotional change to succeed. You have to alter your strategy. You can't just blindly follow the want, because doing so means this will end in tragedy. Tragedy is nothing more than the protagonist not changing in the second half of the story, even after learning the external want must be shed for the internal need to succeed. It's a refusal to change after the point of no return. But you must change. Again, if that emotional change doesn't happen, and you continue on to the second half of the climb in the context of still following the path of the external want, tragedy is guaranteed to strike. So if I'm correct, as we're looking up these stairs, feeling fear, but desperately wanting to climb, there should be a talisman to confirm the danger of doing so. Not only that, but it will tell us what the penalty will be and from whom that penalty will come. Of course, it also needs to be something we're ignorant of at the time because we're focused on the stairs, ready to climb, despite not changing and can think of nothing but the one. And wouldn't you know it? There it is, just off to the right of the staircase. Cupid. A small statue of Cupid holding a bow and arrow, ready to fire, faces Arbogast. He doesn't see it, and neither does the audience, because we're too focused on the stairs in that shot. All we care about is the want, the desire to go up there. Hitchcock places the ignorance in an obscure spot, because that's how it occurs to us emotionally. It's brilliant. We should know better, but don't because we need to change at that point in the narrative. Arbogast desperately wants to get to the truth, but this isn't the right thing to do. 
He's manipulating this situation. That's what people do when they can't manage to change emotionally to accommodate. So, that's why Cupid appears. Now, Arbogast doesn't notice Cupid, and neither does the audience. So Hitchcock will have Arbogast survey the room during his hesitation, and it's then we get a direct shot of Cupid pointing the bow and arrow. There's a heavy shadow of itself behind the figure. Of course, that shadowed Cupid, that little boy, represents Norman Bates and is telling us that he's going to kill Arbogast. But again, we're desperate to go up those stairs, and so is the poor detective. That ensures tragedy is about to strike, because change does not precede this action. So Arbogast is standing still at this time, and the last thing he does before taking a step forward to go up the stairs is glance over at the statue of Cupid aiming at him. But he looks right back to the stairs and proceeds anyhow. That's what a protagonist does in tragedy, conscious of the potential consequences of their decision or not. Of course, what I really love about this is that when a protagonist crosses the midway or halfway point of the narrative in a tragedy, making the decision to proceed despite the danger, at the end, when they pay the ultimate price due to their ignorance of proceeding in the absence of changing emotionally to shed the want for the need, we can always trace the consequences back to the midpoint. And here we are, looking at Arbogast, ignoring this talisman of truth at the midpoint. He's going to proceed anyway. So Hitchcock is about to unleash some serious symbolic resonance here. Due to Arbogast's willful ignorance in climbing the stairs despite the potential danger in search of the truth, he's going to suffer the dire consequence of getting stabbed. But instead of killing him at the top of the stairs, Hitchcock has him fall back down them onto the floor right in the exact spot where he stood at the midpoint and made that decision to proceed. It's in the same spot Cupid was aiming the bow at him. So the protagonist is literally taken back to the place within the narrative where he made an ignorant decision in order to learn his lesson about what went wrong. Clearly, he realizes the truth now about Norman's mother, but his killer is over top of him. So as happens in tragedy, the protagonist doesn't change and thereby must learn their lesson by suffering the finality of the consequences of proceeding anyhow. With that said, Arbogast is stabbed to death as he learns the truth. In tragedy, the protagonist learns the truth when his actions have already ensured loss or death. Now, what we also notice at the top of the stairs is a painting hanging on the wall. Like other pieces of art on the property, I'm not able to identify what this is, mostly because I'm an idiot, but I can explain what resonates with me about what's depicted. So, the painting is in the upstairs hallway, directly in the background, meaning when Arbogast approaches the stairs, it faces the audience. Now, 
Here's what's interesting in terms of how this plays out. When Arbogast looks up the stairs the first time, the painting is prominent in the shot at the top. The next thing he does, after looking up the stairs, is turn to see Cupid aiming at him. So, what's in the painting? It depicts a woman in a similar pose to Susanna in Susanna and the Elders from the parlor behind the motel office, except there are no elders. If you recall, they represented the evil of grown men who are overcome by sexual desire, unlike the depiction of the two little boys as Cupid in the other painting. So what we can see is that the lone woman in the photo represents female beauty uncorrupted by the presence of grown men who are overwhelmed with sexual desire and is more consistent with the harmless approach of the boy, Cupid, who allows Venus to be admired and doted upon without fear of men. That's why we're shown the painting, and then Arbogast turns to notice Cupid. That's what Cupid, a.k.a. Norman, is protecting. He's treating Mother like Venus and keeping men away from her because, as we'll learn, the interference of a grown man when he was younger caused a rift between him and his mother that led to his emotional issue. He doesn't want anybody to come between the two of them. That's his problem. His father died when he was young, and all he had was his mother. He latched on to that. But years later, when he was in the process of growing to a man himself, she took a lover who Norman felt replaced him. What he needed to do was grow up, go out on his own, and find a woman to replace her as any normal guy would do as he went through adolescence. But Norman was unable to change for fear of losing her. That fear stemmed from losing his father at such a young age and then growing up worried he'd lose his mother too. So, I'll leave the rest of that story off to the side for now, but I think you can probably project what Norman did to deal with that situation in lieu of growing up and maturing. Anyhow, back to the painting. It represents Norma Bates as Venus. Norman is downstairs in the form of Cupid protecting her, literally positioned by the stairs. But Hitchcock is foreshadowing something else here. Like the Susanna and the Elders painting, the woman in this one is reaching to the sky. But Susanna was summoning God's help, or at least it appears that way. She isn't fighting the men off. She's seeking divine intervention. On the other hand, the woman in this painting is just reaching up at the sky with no one else around. But we have to validate the idea of her reaching up to God. We can see why Susanna was doing it, but Hitchcock needs to tell us that with this painting of the lone woman. So, Arbogast goes up the stairs, reaches the top, and rounds the corner at the post. As that's happening, Mother's bedroom door opens partially. Someone steps out and heads for Arbogast. But here's what's important for us. When Arbogast gets to that point at the post, the camera shot transitions to a place directly above the painting, pointing down at the floor. The woman in the painting is reaching up to this place, and now we're looking down from that perspective. 
and that perspective starts as soon as we see its mother coming out of the bedroom wielding the knife about to stab Arbogast. Hitchcock wouldn't have the lone woman in the painting reaching up to heaven and the camera pointed down from that perspective right above it unless he was trying to tell us something. And that something coincides with the presence of Cupid we just saw that foreshadowed him as the real killer or protector of this woman, a.k.a. Venus. So, if Norman is Cupid, but we see Mother attacking the detective, what it says is that Mother is really up in heaven and the person pretending to be Mother is Norman. If that's the case, it says the truth Norman wants to protect is that Mother is dead. So, we'll obviously talk a lot more about that. But let's move forward in the story. Anyhow, after Arbogast is stabbed to death, we transition to a scene in the storeroom at the hardware store where Sam and Loomis anxiously await Arbogast's arrival, which, obviously, isn't coming. But they're getting anxious as they wait. We see multiple rakes over their heads in the background to symbolize the talons and danger of the stuffed bird, a.k.a. Norma Bates, that awaits them back at the motel. Now, if you remember the heater-cooler reference from earlier about Sam and Lila, we get a great example of it here. Lila's all fired up and ready to take action because Arbogast hasn't returned. But Sam cools her jets by smiling and telling her Arbogast will be back soon, despite the fact the man has been gone three hours. The idea here is that they need Lila's tenacity and ambition but also Sam's measured approach. He cools her heat. Not only does that make them compatible romantically, but it also serves them well in their approach to having success as the protagonists moving forward. Arbogast went full blast at discovering the truth when he should have investigated further. Lila's ambition will fuel a relentless search for her sister, but Sam tempers her pace with measured action allowing them to proceed in a manner conducive to learning what they require to succeed. This is why Hitchcock showed the heater label over Lila's head and the cooler label in front of Sam's face during an earlier conversation in the store. And they don't have to get together romantically, like I said. Hitchcock is smart enough to know that even just planting the seed of romance will have the audience wildly projecting it. Now, again, Hitchcock, being one of the classic auteurs of his craft, also plants a really funny inside joke in that same scene. When Lila has the heater's label over her head, directly above it is another label that reads Home Appliances. Obviously, heaters can be considered as part of the broad category of Home Appliances. But it's well known that Hitchcock thought John Gavin who played Sam, was a total stiff. He definitely looked the part, but Hitchcock asserted that his performance was stiff and boring. So whereas Marion's labels read home appliances with heaters below that, what's written above the cooler label in front of Sam's face is wallpaper. Clearly, cooling units and wallpaper have no correlation whatsoever. But much like Kubrick took a stab at Stephen King, by having a red beetle in his film version of The Shining 
get run off the road and incapacitated, signifying the Beatle from King's book, Hitchcock indulges the same here. Auteurs do that sometimes. So, Sam can see Lila's ready to go full blast at the Bates Motel because Arbogast isn't back yet. He can see her pushing too hard. She even says, quote, Patience doesn't run in my family, end quote. But Sam, the cooler, knows better. He tells her to wait at the store, and he's going to head out to the base motel and take a look around. Sam drives out there and calls out for Arbogast repeatedly. He doesn't see the man's car anywhere. Now, as opposed to Arbogast, who was hasty, and Lila, whom he had to just stop from going too fast, Sam, the cooler, decides to leave at this point. He knows they need to investigate further before returning, unlike Arbogast. The difference between what they're doing and what Arbogast did is that they're going to shed their ignorance little by little on the way to learning the truth. Arbogast avoided that growth and simply repeated his first action of going to the house by going right back without learning anything more. He went back in ignorance. That's how tragedy works. The protagonist keeps hammering the same nail when he needs to change. Now, we get a great moment here when Sam is at the base motel calling out for Arbogast. Norman isn't around. It's just Sam calling the detective's name outside. Of course, we want to know where Arbogast is too. Yet, we sort of already know. That's when Hitchcock cuts to the swamp where Norman ditched Marion's car. There's no car sinking this time. We just hear Sam calling Arbogast's name in the distance, and we realize Norman has already submerged the man and his vehicle. Now, Norman is running out of space to submerge things in this swamp, which is relevant from an emotional standpoint. He can't keep this going much longer. All the swarming antagonistic forces are creating a situation where he's going to have nowhere else to hide the truth. That's why Hitchcock chooses to use a small swamp. It's entirely apparent that he can't submerge much else in there. It's getting full. If he keeps going, the truth is going to rise. Of course, if you remember how I said the truth in this film has to rise by physical means, guess what the last shot of the movie is? We see Marion's car being pulled out of the swamp by the chain of a tow truck. In the tragedy, when the protagonist refuses to change, truth comes to light by physical means. The successful protagonist, however, finds truth through emotional change. So, this heater-cooler thing becomes much more relevant to the narrative. Sam and Lila are learning together how to become more like each other and for the better. Lila can't proceed in life as being just the heater, and Sam can't decide to be only the cooler. By balancing each other out and then slowly adopting parts of the other person's disposition as a supplement to their own, what do they do? They ultimately bring unity from disunity with that strategy. That's what the successful protagonist does. It's also what the successful romantic couple does. 
But let's talk about Norman back at the swamp for a minute. He's looking out over the water, but then hears Sam's voice. The last time we saw him doing this, he had a slight smile after the car submerged. But this time, he's truly somber. And it's because Sam Loomis is his worst enemy. The truth Norman has been trying to protect about Mother is only half of the equation in his emotional issue. But we'll get to that when these two meet face to face. Anyhow, we go back to the hardware store in the next scene. Lila sees and hears Sam's vehicle arrive. She's seated in the back room and runs out to the area inside the front door as Sam walks in. The store is dark and Hitchcock has Lila's face in total darkness as she waits for Sam. The darkness represents the fact that she's in the dark, so to speak, about what's going on. Sam has joined her there, and he's standing in the dark as well, facing her. And that's when they admit to each other that, of course, they are in the dark and that they have no clue about what's going on. So, like I said, since they're working together and learning from each other, they aren't going to succumb to Arbogast's fate. In this instance, they don't understand what's going on. So instead of pushing the issue by going back to the motel like Arbogast did, they decide to do one very important thing. Learn. Unlike Arbogast, they change and or adapt. They do what he should have done after Norman shut him down the first time. They decide to contact the local sheriff. They drive out to his house late at night and explain the situation to the man and his wife. Notice that it's a decisive, aggressive action that Lila would take in a sense that they show up at the sheriff's house in the middle of the night to try to get him to act immediately, but it's also a measured, cool-headed approach like Sam would take because he's putting the matter into the hands of the authorities where it definitely belongs. So at this point we already see the benefits of these two working together and learning from each other. So anyway, the sheriff and his wife meet Lila and Sam in the living room of the sheriff's home. They briefly explain the story about Marion, and then say the last they heard of the private investigator is when he went back out to the Bates house to try to speak to Mrs. Bates, as Sam calls her. When the sheriff's wife hears the words, Mrs. Bates, she suddenly gets a big smile and asks, Norman took a wife? It's clear something isn't right here. Sam responds, No, I don't think so. An old woman, his mother. Right then, the sheriff's wife turns to her husband. Her smile is gone. He flashes her a look of recognition, but wants to hear the rest of the story first. So the sheriff listens, and then says he thinks the private detective got a lead on where Marion really is, and took off without telling them because he wanted to get to her first. So here we get a nice moment of suspense. The sheriff says to Sam that he must remember that bad business that went on out of the Bates house about ten years ago. And of course, we really want to know what happened. What's he talking about? But the sheriff instead calls Norman on the phone without explaining what he means. So we have to wait. Again, Hitchcock puts us in limbo, extending the suspense rather than capping it off. Now, Norman tells the sheriff that the detective stopped by to ask some questions thanked him, and then went on his way. But he says he never came back. That's the story. The sheriff then hangs up with Norman and relays that information to Lila and Sam. 
Lila insists Arbogast was going out to the Bates house, again, to speak to Norman's mother. And the sheriff, who thinks the private detective was trying to fleece her and Sam, says, Your detective told you he couldn't come right back because he was going to question Norman Bates' mother, right? And Lila confirms that suggestion. And that's when the sheriff drops a bombshell. He says, Norman Bates' mother has been dead and buried in Greenlawn Cemetery for the past ten years. Of course, nobody is suspecting the outcome we're going to get in this film in terms of the issue Norman suffers. Of course, nobody is suspecting the outcome we're going to get in this film in terms of the issue Norman suffers. The sheriff is thinking the questioning of Bates' mother was just a ruse by the detective to give him a head start in getting to Marion. And now the sheriff explains what he meant about the bad business that happened out there ten years ago. He said there was a murder-suicide. Norman's mother poisoned her lover with strychnine when she learned he was married, and then poisoned herself. The sheriff says, strychnine, ugly way to die. Now, let's think back to the first time we were in the hardware store. There was a woman asking about insect poison and suggesting she thought it should be painless whether it's an insect or a man. It made us wonder if she wasn't actually asking in the context of a man being the victim in her own personal use of the product. In the same way, we wonder whether or not Norma Bates really poisoned her lover and herself. We're not sure if that's true. But that's what Hitchcock wants to accomplish by foreshadowing it. When we flash back to the woman asking about the insect poison, in our minds, due to the similarities, we remember we weren't sure if she was going to poison a man or not. It asks us to later question the story about Norman's mother poisoning herself and her lover. And we get a strong moment right here. Sam, who isn't usually aggressive enough, gets really heated and passionate in his effort to prove to the sheriff that he saw an old woman sitting up in the window at the Bates house. Meanwhile, Lila counters with a calm, reasoned argument to support Sam's assertion. So we see them now assuming some of the characteristics of the other person when necessary. It's part of the growth process, and because they've indulged this emotional growth, it's going to lead to a question that they need to answer. By convincing the sheriff that both Sam and Arbogast saw Norma Bates, it leads the sheriff to inquire this. Well, if that woman up there is Mrs. Bates, who's that woman buried out in Greenlawn Cemetery? That's what they need to discover. Unlike Arbogast, they're armed with new information and new understanding that allows them to proceed with the necessary caution to succeed in their task. If the woman up in the window is not Norman's mother, who's in the grave, and in truth he's hiding Marion up there in that second floor bedroom, then Sam and Lila need to know. Now they have reason to return to the motel, but with caution. Now, while Hitchcock has just put us in suspense regarding the truth about Norman's mother, we can't wait to see her again to decide if it's her or not. Is she dead? Strangely enough, Hitchcock shows us Norma Bates in the next scene and even has her talking. But we're still going to be left in suspense again, nonetheless. He uses the ploy of showing us Norma like we'll get resolution to the tension and mystery, only to heighten it 
in the most tantalizing way possible. Let's take a look. In this next scene, Norman enters the Bates home, and we see another prominent shot of that painting of the lone woman hanging on the wall facing us at the top of the stairs. Norman climbs the steps to the second floor and enters his mother's bedroom. Meanwhile, the camera stays at the bottom of the stairs. The two of them start talking, and we hear Norma getting upset over the fact that Norman is going to hide her in the fruit cellar due to their unwanted guests. She says she won't go down there, but Norman asks please. She then berates him with the notion that he sounds ludicrous when he tries to give her orders. She says this is her room, and nobody will drag her out of it. Meanwhile, the camera is moving up the stairwell, but not specifically on the path of the steps. It's veering left a bit, crossing over the railing and heading for the painting. Norman is trying to explain that Arbogast came for Marion, and now someone will come for him. He's arguing that the move to the fruit cellar is necessary. At this time, the camera veers left off the stairwell, over the second floor hallway railing, and rises above her bedroom door. This motion is giving us a bit of deja vu. Something about this movement is familiar, like we've been here before. At that moment, the camera rotates to position itself directly above the painting, pointed straight down, to offer the same shot we saw when Mother attacked Arbogast. It's telling us the same thing by essentially looking down from heaven, so to speak. Of course, it's foreshadowing the truth that she's dead, making us question what we're about to see in a different light than when she attacked Arbogast. In that case, Norma was on her own two feet, and capable, leaving no doubt she's alive. But this time, she throws a fit behind her bedroom door, refusing to leave. Norman has to carry her out of the room, cradled in his arms. Now, what we're thinking is that we're going to see the truth, or at least enough to make a solid decision. But Hitchcock handles this perfectly. As Norman carries her out of the room and down the stairs, the camera remains static, so there's no outright manipulation of what we see. There are no tricks to conceal the truth. At the same time, while we see Mother's full body and she's talking, we can't see her face in this position, nor can we see Norman's face. So we hear her speaking, but we don't see her mouth. Likewise, we can't see Norman's face either. So even if we had suspicions about what's truly happening, we wouldn't be able to confirm them. We don't see Norma fight back against this action. She's just verbally refusing. So we never actually see her move, but she's instructing Norman to put her down because she can walk on her own. She's upset about being carried down the stairs. And the scene ends there. We're left to wonder exactly what's happening with her. So again, another example of Hitchcock extending the suspense by keeping us in limbo. At this point, we transition to the next scene outside the Fairvale Church as the morning service lets out. The sheriff and his wife exit the building to find Sam and Lila waiting for them. Sam and Lila ask if they can ride out to the base motel with the sheriff to check it out, given the new information about Norman's mother, of course, but the sheriff explains he already went there before church. He claims he discovered the same as Arbogast, 
minus any evidence of anybody living there except Norman. He asserts Norman Bates is alone out there at the house. He then tells Sam he knows the young man isn't the, quote, seeing illusions type, but he must have seen a ghost. Sam, however, knows what he saw, and Arbogast confirmed it, so with two witnesses having seen a woman up in the window, he and Lila believe it's true. The sheriff suggests they should come to his office and file a report about the theft and Marion being missing. The sooner they do that, he says, the sooner they stand a chance of having Marion found. But Sam and Lila know through Arbogast that the rich guy isn't looking to press charges. He just wants to recoup his cash. So, they don't want to get the police involved. Now, there's a lot at stake here. Sam and Lila, of course, don't want Marion to face criminal punishment. They just want her to return the money and make amends for her crime. In the same way Norman's trying to protect Mother, they want to protect Marion. Now, since the sheriff has already ruled out the Bates Motel as Marion's location, and wants to open an investigation beyond it, even suggesting Sam saw a ghost, Lila and Sam will now have to make the bold decision to forge ahead without the law involved. Sam knows what he saw. Arbogast confirmed it, and Lila believes it too. So there's only one thing to do at this point. Sam and Lila have to go learn the truth. So we transition to the next scene in Sam's truck in which he and Lila formulate a plan to check into the Bates Motel as husband and wife. They're going to search every inch of this place in an effort to figure out what happened to Marion Crane. Now, they go there and meet Norman, at which point they immediately begin redirecting light by way of lies about how their husband and wife and Sam is on a business trip that's taking them down to San Francisco. As the false couple indulges use of this story, they find themselves reflected in the office mirror, signifying the fact that they've undergone a psychological split in their deceit. They're doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. They aren't the police and have no right to investigate, so they have to lie continually to have any success. Sam asserts his boss requires receipts for all his expenses, so he demands to sign in and get a receipt in the aftermath, even after Norman says it's not necessary to sign in. We can see Sam makes Norman naturally nervous in a way no one else does. As we see them standing face to face, it quickly becomes apparent why Norman is so intimidated by this man. Anthony Perkins, who plays Norman, is tall at six feet two inches lanky, and a handsome man who's boyishly charming, but he's also nervous, meek, and stutters occasionally, which gives others the impression he's not so confident. Marion spoke to him and was amused by him in a very non-sexual type of way. It was obvious she didn't find Norman the type of man for whom she'd fall head over heels, like Sam. Despite being tall, lean, and attractive, Norman suffers from emotional issues that prevent him from maturing naturally. It's evident in his disposition. Sam, on the other hand, proves to look much like Norman. He's also tall, handsome, and charming, but in a mature way that distinguishes him as having strong potential as a sexual partner, as evidenced by Marion's relationship with him. Sam, played by John Gavin, is taller than Norman at 6 feet 4 inches, and even more handsome, he also speaks and moves with confidence 
and rather than being lanky, he's strong and muscular. Hitchcock chose an actor for the part of Sam, who would have physical and emotional growth that exceeded Norman's in an obvious way. He's two inches taller, more muscular, more confident, and clearly more successful with women. He also fights to keep his business alive, while Norman just lets his float away. So, the deficiency Norman displays, in comparison to Sam, despite the similarities, are the physical representation of the emotional growth Norman refused to indulge. If you recall from earlier, there are many similarities between Norman's situation and Sam's. They were both left troubled businesses by a death in the family, yet Sam is fighting to make his work, and Norman has given up on even trying. Sam needed to overcome his feelings of failure about being stuck in that hardware store after his father's death, and having failed in marriage, both things leaving him drowning in debt. By maturing to an extent, he wrote Mary in the letter saying they should be together no matter what. Sam matured, but Norman, not wanting to grow up and find a woman to love and marry, despite the financial issues going on at the motel after the new highway was built and his mother died, specifically decided to not mature. He wants to remain a boy forever. Sam is the personification of everything Norman's foregoing in his wasted life by refusing to mature and instead engaging the physical manifestation of his emotional issue to cope. Intuitively, in this scene, they both clearly know it, in the same way two men walking down the street will know who's the alpha and who's the beta without even speaking on the subject. Do you remember how I said Norman's character arc, because it's tragic, would have to be the product of physical measures? This is part of that process. He's seeing the man he could have become, and didn't, due to his refusal to change. And we get a nice confirmation of Sam's growth in a moment, as well as Lila's. As they leave the office, Lila in front, she quickly checks to see if the door on cabin one is open. It is. She shuts it quickly, at which point Sam leads her to cabin ten, with Norman stepping outside to offer to show them the room. Sam says they'll find it on their own, and the two go off to settle into their cabin. Norman watches with suspicion. As someone who redirects light, he recognizes they're doing it too. Of course, Norman is also paranoid because evolution continues to swarm. He keeps getting people coming out here to try to detect the truth about Marion. Each time he takes care of the onslaught, somebody else always comes back. So, Sam and Lila are in cabin 10 and located right next to each other in the frame. On either side of them, on the wall in the background, we have a framed picture of a plant with blossoming flowers. At that moment, Lila tells Sam they have to search cabin one, no matter how much it might hurt to learn the truth about Marion. Sam agrees, despite the deep look of concern about what the truth will be. This is what protagonists do to mature. They engage the difficult emotional turmoil involved in facing the truth, in order to allow them the understanding, or lesson, required for them to go on in their lives in the aftermath. Both Sam and Lila know they might discover a truth that crushes them, that absolutely breaks their hearts, but once they learn it, they can go about their lives accordingly. 
So just like the stationary crane in the opening scene represented Marion's need to do the heavy emotional lifting of changing to accommodate her needs, rather than becoming the bird, a.k.a. crane, that took flight from her problems, we're getting a similar representation here. We got two opposing photos of birds when Norman and Marion faced each other in Cabin 1, as they did nothing but take flight from their problems. But now, for Sam and Lila, we're shown two pictures of plants blooming flowers. The plants are obviously rooted, aka stationary, and they only grow and bloom flowers if you add what resource? Water. So, as water is our most precious physical resource in relation to survival, the parallel is that emotional growth, meaning change, or maturing, is humanity's most precious resource in the context of our emotional well-being. The pictures are symbolic of Sam and Lila's willingness to do things like search the cabin despite the ugly truth awaiting them. They know they have to do this. Do you remember those words that resonated? People never run away from anything. That's what Norman Bates assured us. And he's able to make such an assertion because he's suffering that exact fate. So, anyhow, they go to cabin one, see Norman's not in the office at the time, and enter to do their search. Sam notices there's no shower curtain in the bathroom. It's just the rod and the rings. At the same time, Lila finds a scrap of the paper Marion tore up and flushed down the toilet. It's stuck to the inside of the bowl. She sees something is being subtracted from $40,000 on the paper and realizes it would be too much of a coincidence for anyone else but Marion to have written this. Lila says she wants to go up to the Bates house to see if she can question Norma. Meanwhile, Sam is going to distract Norman. Sam says he doesn't like the idea of her going up there alone, but concedes to the idea of staying down at the motel to distract Norman in the process. Yet, he knows there is a great deal of danger. So whereas he was selfish with Marion earlier, and wouldn't change for her so they could be together, Sam has now learned his lesson. He has to put Lila first. He tells her that if she gets any information about Marion from Norma Bates, that she should leave immediately and not wait for him. They need to learn the truth about Marion and resolve this issue, and Sam is willing to sacrifice his own needs in the process to ensure success. He's putting Lila's safety and the truth about Marion ahead of his own well-being. That selflessness is a sign that he's matured. Now, with our protagonist fully committed and having changed for the better through each other's influence, leading to emotional growth, there's nowhere for Norman to run anymore. This bird can't take flight from his emotional issue. And guess what Hitchcock does? He tells us that, but manages to do it without saying a word. It's a two-part process. Check it out. When Sam closes the door as the pair exits cabin one, the last thing we see as the door shuts are the identical framed pictures of opposing birds hanging one on top of the other on the wall outside the bathroom. The ones that earlier represented Norman and Marion taking flight from emotional change. Once the door is closed, those birds are trapped inside. Obviously, Marion died in there, 
so she was already trapped inside, unable to take flight any longer. But now, watch what happens with Norman and the aftermath of this symbolic display of trapping him in a room with no way to take flight from it. As stated, Sam and Lila have just quietly exited Cabin 1, and Sam walks over to the office while Lila waits for him to signal it's all clear to make a move to go up to the house. Sam is surprised to see Norman standing just inside the office doorway. He freezes a moment, and Norman asks, You looking for me? It's clear he knows what just transpired. We question if he was eavesdropping outside the door of Cabin 1. What does he know? But what we notice immediately, as Norman asks that question, is what's directly above his head, in the background, standing on a shelf. It's a stuffed bird with its wings spread. But it's not just any bird, and it's not on a perch. It's standing. Of course, the bird is a rooster. And what can't a rooster do, despite trying often? It can't take flight. Hitchcock even shows us its stubby little wings pointed out to the side. So, we're being told Norman isn't going to be able to take flight from his problems this time, emotionally or physically. The stuffed bird represents the emotional aspect of that, but like I said, Norman's change is being forced, so it needs to come through physical means. Sam needs to show him the truth. He's trapped. So Norman, who we know is suspicious of Sam and Lila, immediately steps forward into the doorway where Sam is, and the two converse only inches apart. Sam isn't budging, and neither is Norman. Sam is trapping the bird inside, behind the door. In line with the symbolism I just talked about in Cabin 1, closing the door on the birds, Sam is trapping the bird inside here, preventing it from taking flight. Norman wants to get outside to be able to see what Lila is doing, while Sam knows that he has to keep Norman in the office to let Lila make her way up to the house. Soon enough, Norman realizes Sam isn't going to be intimidated or even move away from blocking the door, so he relents. He accepts being trapped. Norman walks back into the office, and Sam follows. Sam motions with a hand for Lila to proceed. So, in essence, Sam has trapped the bird inside, preventing it from flight. He used physicality to force a situation that brings us one step closer to the truth. That's the only way they're going to get it. They must force Norman's unity from his current disunity by physical measures because he won't change emotionally. So Lila sneaks around the back of the motel and then makes the dreaded climb up the steps to the front door. She walks in and quickly shuts the door behind her. Lila looks around, ignorant of Cupid, and then heads up the stairs. We then cut to the motel office where Norman listens to Sam ramble on and on. He asks Norman, You're all alone here, aren't you? Norman confirms it's true. Sam says, It would drive me crazy. Of course, that's going to push Norman's buttons badly but it's also true to Sam's story as well. He was alone, living in the stockroom at his store, and too embarrassed to have Marion come stay with him, so it started to drive him crazy, at which point he decided to change, per the letter. The film then cuts back to Lila, 
rounding the top of the stairs onto the second floor of the Bates house. Of course, we're in suspense this whole time because we're wondering if Norman is going to find his way out of here or if she's going to see something first. So Lila calls out gently for Mrs. Bates, but receives no answer. At this moment, Hitchcock has the camera pointed up the stairs. Cupid is on the right side of the frame, guarding the front door and the stairs from intruders. The painting of the lone woman is in the middle, and on the left we have Lila Crane, played by Vera Miles, standing in front of Norma's bedroom door, about to enter. She walks in as she calls out for Mrs. Bates again, but there's no response this time either. Lila surveys the room, and to her left we see a statue of a nude woman reaching upward that's similar to the rest of the depictions in the film, except the difference here is that this statue looks like a shrine at the entryway. The room is still fully furnished and seems lived in as you'd expect it to look if Mother was residing in there. There's a bar of soap at a sink to Lila's left, but strangely, it looks unused. Lila goes to a nearby wardrobe and opens it. It's full of dresses an older woman would wear. That's when she looks in a mirror that's facing another mirror and scares herself and the audience with her reflection. She turns to the bed, and there's a distinct impression on the mattress of someone lying in the same position all the time. On a side note, if you've seen the film, you know the impression on the bed is overkill to the point of hilarious comedy. It looks like Norma would have to be dropped from the sky without a parachute in order to put an impression that deep on the bed. It's really silly. But anyway, um, I think with having such depth to the impression, Hitchcock was trying to suggest the extensive length of time the bed had been slept on in that position, which isn't conducive to visual storytelling. We know she's been dead 10 years, but there's no legitimate way to convey the length of time with the camera. In my personal, unprofessional opinion, I think a modest impression would have worked. All we need to see is that the impression is only in one position, and so what that suggests to us is that whoever's been lying there isn't moving while in the bed. Anyhow, we briefly cut back to the office and wonder if Sam is still able to hold Norman's attention while Lila is in the house. The catch-22 with this situation is that Lila needs to search the house, and Sam also needs to put the heat on Norman with questioning, so we wonder when Norman will lose his cool, realizing that Sam must keep him there. Otherwise, if he leaves, Lila is in some serious trouble. She's going to get killed. Now, what's really interesting here is that we have this scene going on in the office, which is causing us a lot of suspense, and then we also have the scene up in the house, and we're intercutting between the two, and they're equally suspenseful because one impacts the other. Now, unfortunately, Sam is looming over Norman, and the two are now on the verge of arguing, so it seems like Norman's about to make a move. One interesting thing to note here is that Norman and Sam are positioned so that Sam looks much larger than he actually is in true comparison. Sam is two inches taller, but towers over Norman. With the increasing tension between them, it seems to lend itself to the idea of Norman feeling trapped. 
As the tension rises in the motel office, we switch back to the Bates house. Lila has exited Mother's bedroom and reluctantly entered Norman's room. She's instantly perplexed by what she sees. The room seems equally furnished and decorated for a child or a man. There are exquisite paintings on the wall and stuffed animals lying about, along with a toy train. The bed is much smaller than would be necessary for a grown man, especially Norman at six feet two inches, and there's a stuffed rabbit sitting on it. That's when Lila goes to a record player. Beethoven's Eroica Symphony is the record sitting silently under the needle inside. Now, on the surface, it's pretty clear children with stuffed animals and toy trains don't often listen to Beethoven, but there's more at play here. I don't know how deep the significance runs, but one thing I talk about frequently in the context of criminality is that sociopathic behavior often leads to a self-deification process in which you're the god of your world. You don't abide social norms, or even morality. You do what satisfies your desires, meaning whatever you want, instead of what society needs, which is for you to hold up your end of the barter on the social contract of increasing civility. Basically, you follow the rules, and in return, society extends everyone that trust. So, when Beethoven wrote the Eroica Symphony, it was initially named after Napoleon, someone Beethoven admired greatly. But in 1804, Napoleon crowned himself emperor, making himself god of his world, and for his own selfish ambitions. Beethoven felt he ignored society's plight in favor of serving himself in a self-deification process. That's essentially what Norman Bates does. He becomes god of his world and spits in the face of people who extend him trust. Beethoven ripped up the title page of his symphony and decided to rename it. Plus, when the main subject of the symphony is brought to his knees, they hold a funeral march for him. So this work essentially encompasses Norman's narrative. It's on the record player in his bedroom for a couple of reasons. One is that he relates to the content, a.k.a. his want, and the other, as symbolized by silence in the room and the fact the record isn't playing, is that he needs the charade to end. That's when Lila picks up a book nearby and opens it. We don't get to see the pages, but I think the only element noticeably missing from this tour of the room, and one which we know for a fact Norman struggles with, is sexuality. So, I'm thinking it's likely porn. Anyhow, Norman requires finding peace from the burden of this secret about his mother. It needs to come out. As Sam and Lila press physically to learn more, it starts to rise. So continuing with that theme, we're back at the motel office now. When we last saw Norman, he was leaning back against the wall, hands in his pockets, taking things in stride. But Sam was effectively turning up the heat, and you could see Norman starting to show signs of wear. But now, when we return, Norman is up in Sam's face, leaning against the back of the office counter, tapping his fingers. He looks nervous and agitated because he knows where the questions will lead. Mother. Let's watch it unfold. Sam and Norman are face to face. Sam says, You look frightened. Have I been saying something frightening? Norman replies, I don't know what you've been saying. And Sam delivers the keyword to set Norman off 
with his next line. I've been talking about your mother and your hotel. How are you going to do it? Norman snaps at him. Do what? Sam asserts, buy a new one, a new hotel, in a new town where you won't have to hide your mother. Now, if you recall from earlier, in reference to Arbogast questioning Norma, Norman tried to cut him off as soon as his mother got involved in the discussion. That's the tipping point, the truth. So, he does the same thing here. He says, why don't you just get in your car and drive away from here, okay? But Sam doesn't relent. He decides it's time to become transparent and brings up the $40,000. But Norman doesn't know anything about the money because it was hidden in the newspaper. He just disposed of it in the swamp due to ignorance. So as Sam keeps pressing, instead of leaving, Norman walks away from him into the back parlor, with Sam standing in the doorway. He's trapped. The predatory birds, like the owl, loom over him. As Sam arrives in the doorway, blocking it, he says, quote, I bet your mother knows where the money is and what you did to get it. I think she'll tell us. End quote. Of course, Norman is terrified by the prospect of this man trying to get to his mother. But right then, with Sam's use of the word, quote, us, Norman realizes he can't account for Lila's whereabouts and that he's been manipulated into this trap that they set for him. Norman tries to escape the room, but Sam grabs him, and the worst struggle in the history of film ensues. It lasts about 0.38 seconds and has Norman knocking Sam out with a container that's resting on a nearby table. I mean, this is such a great film, it's easy to forget it was made on a low budget and just simply rushed through filming. So Sam is out cold on the parlor floor. Norman runs out the office door and heads up the stairs toward the house. That's when we cut to Lila coming down the stairs from the second floor. She freezes near the base of the staircase when she sees Norman running up the exterior stairs toward the front door. Lila looks back up the stairs as though she should retreat, but obviously thinks Norman will go to his mother's room up there first. In that light, Lila quickly comes down off the stairs rounds the corner where the post is and heads back toward the kitchen. She sees a railing with vertical bars underneath the main staircase and a set of descending stairs next to them. It's obvious this leads to a basement of some kind. So she rounds the railing and goes partway down those stairs, stopping to listen as Norman enters the front door. When she does that, and Norman is now in the house, we see her standing directly behind the railing bars with both hands on them like she's a prisoner looking out of a cell. It's saying she's trapped. So again, Norman comes in and pauses inside the front door. We wonder what he'll do. It's a great moment of suspense because Mother is actually down in the wine cellar and Lila doesn't know she's standing right in the path to get there. Again, the bars are telling us she's trapped. So the hiding spot Lila thinks is best because Norman doesn't want anyone going up to Mother's bedroom, and will go there first, could actually be the thing that gets her killed. Mother is what Norman is trying to protect, and we know Mother isn't upstairs. She's in the wine cellar. So these could be some seriously tragic circumstances for Lila. Now here are two things we have to consider. One is that Norman 
knows that everybody thinks his mother stays in her room, so that's the most likely place Lila would go. And two, Norman has to dress as his mother to attack the intruders. What it says is that his dedication is not to sound logic, but to his emotional issue. That's the mark of a sociopath. He doesn't adapt. He simply acts on his desires by going with plan A each time. There's no plan B. There's only one path to his goal. Of course, the movie is called Psycho, but Norman definitely leans toward being a sociopath. His condition suggests his environment growing up bred this illness and that it was not something inherent passed down through his genetic heritage. Now, with that said, Psycho is a great title, and you could certainly make an argument for many of Norman's traits, particularly his willingness to kill his own mother as being typical of a mind afflicted by psychopathy. But by the end here, I think we'll see that this relationship with his mother is the root cause of the evil. Anyhow, Norman runs up the stairs, and we feel a sense of ease now because Lila can just run out the front door. She takes a few steps up the stairs she's on, but then looks curiously back down those stairs. She came to search the house, and believes Norman is concerned with keeping people from getting upstairs, so she's going to go down there. She came to search the house, and believes that Norman is concerned with keeping people from getting upstairs, so she's going to make the safe move, as far as she's concerned, and go down to the cellar. She has to find out the truth about her sister one way or another, right? But it's a bad move. She thinks Norman's going to check upstairs to see if she's with his mother. But once he gets dressed like her up there and grabs the knife, he's going to head directly to the basement because that's where mother is. So Lila is basically trapped down there in her ignorance. She walks down the stairs and enters the basement. But where's Sam? That's what we want to know. Will he regain consciousness and come to her aid? Down in the basement, Lila looks around, but doesn't see her sister or any evidence of her belongings. She notices the door to the fruit cellar and enters. We see a single bright light bulb hanging from the ceiling. Beyond it is a chair facing the far corner of the room. Seated in that chair, with her back to us, is what seems to be an older woman. She's wearing a sweater, and her graying hair is in a bun. Lila calls to her with Mrs. Bates, but there's no answer. We're in suspense at this time. It's the moment of truth. That's Norma Bates, but it has to be confirmed. We can't see her face, yet we know the truth is coming. And again, Hitchcock doubles down on the suspense once again. Not only are we in suspense about who this person is and what's going on down here in the fruit cellar, but Lila is also acting in ignorance of the fact that Norman's next move is naturally going to be to get dressed in his mother's clothes, grab a knife, and come down to the basement to kill her because he's going to be checking on his mother. So, anyhow, Lila approaches her, and remember, again, we know Norman is going upstairs to get in his costume, so it won't be long before he arrives behind her with a knife. 
We worry about her safety, but are also desperate to see Norma's face. We have to know. And why that's so effective is that it seems to be setting up what could potentially be a tragedy. That's when Lila touches Norma's shoulder to get her attention. The chair slowly swivels until the old woman is facing us. It's Norma Bates, all right, but she's mummified. Lila screams at the sight of the dead, shriveled face. It's basically a skull with skin. So as Lila screams, she throws her arms out to her sides, with the right arm pointed toward the sky, and the other lower and mostly off-screen. Her right hand hits the light bulb above her, and it's easy to overlook what's happening here in the chaos. If you recall the painting of the lone woman in the upstairs hallway outside Norma's bedroom door, she had her arms out, with the right one reaching up toward the sky, where the camera went to look straight down from that perspective during the killing of Arbogast, and also when Norman carried Mother downstairs. In the same way the woman in the painting is reaching to God, or Heaven, a.k.a. the Light, that's what's going on here. It's symbolizing Lila is about to be killed, too. Of course, right then, Norman Bates, clearly clad as his mother in a long dress and wig and wielding a huge kitchen knife, enters the room, intending to attack Lila Crane from behind. Lila turns and sees him, terrified because she's trapped here. The light bulb hanging on the cord that she hit with her hand is swinging back and forth, causing darkness and light to alternately cross their faces and bodies, symbolizing the psychological shift, or split, that comprises the root of this issue. Norman screams while moving forward with the knife raised, but suddenly Sam runs in and grabs him from behind. The scream turns from just that, a scream, into the words, I'm Norma Bates. That's the truth, spoken explicitly by Norman. He will not change emotionally, not even now. He will not let go of being mother. The change is being forced on a physical level by outside parties and not emotionally. Now, what this means is that Norman can't go back to being Norman. He has to be only his mother moving forward. If he's her, that's the only way she can live. He won't have the resources anymore to perpetrate the falsehood any longer. The house, her bedroom, the clothes, and her mummified body, along with everything else, will be gone moving forward. He's not going to have access to those things in prison or even in a mental institution. So in the absence of being willing to change, his only option is to assume her identity. With that, when he says, I'm Norma Bates, that's what he's asserting. She's still alive. That's the thing. In tragedy, the hero loses in a big way due to his own actions. The loss here, as it often is in the greatest tragedies, says the protagonist is dead. But since it's a movie made in the framework of psychology, the loss is emotional. For now, though, Sam wrestles Norman from behind to get control of the knife. As he does, 
Norman writhes in agony because the truth is coming to the surface. That truth is being physically forced rather than emotionally earned, so in the same way we see demons physically leave the body during an exorcism, we get the same here. And then the ancillary physical components follow in its wake. If you remember from earlier, I said we would learn the truth about Marion as soon as she took off her clothes, and we would learn the truth about Norman as soon as his clothes were stripped as well. And here we go. Norman's wig falls off, and he drops the knife, helpless as he goes to the ground. But in that position, in which Sam grabs him from behind, and Norman has one arm reaching up to the sky, the framing of that shot mimics the young woman and Susanna and the elders being stripped of her clothing and raped by men behind her. It's symbolically suggesting the use of physical force to strip Norman's facade. Of course, as soon as he's in that position, again, he drops the knife and the wig falls off, the dress even gets pulled open and falls off, revealing Norman in his collared shirt. The facade is entirely stripped at this point. Instead of nudity, the truth is bare. A metaphorical use of rape is due to the fact Norman's finally lost his innocence. We see he doesn't have the capacity to become a man, but he's no longer a boy. For all intents and purposes, Norman Bates got swallowed by truth. It's a tragedy. And the next scene confirms what happened. We're at the local courthouse, gathered in a room with the sheriff, Sam, Lila, and a few others we don't know. Now, this scene would be nothing less than a total atrocity in today's world of screenwriting. But back in 1960, mental health wasn't a subject in which most people were well-versed. So we're about to get an exposition dump once again, and what makes it worse than the one with Arbogast is that this time it comes from a psychiatrist whom we haven't met to this point and is going to speak to us in a very condescending tone like he's some type of prophet who sees what others can't. It's a dreadful way to kill the pacing of the film, but it happens nonetheless. Anyhow, the psychiatrist walks in. The big question everybody wants to ask is if Norman is talking. He says no. He got the whole story, but he got it from Mother. He elaborates by saying, quote, Norman Bates no longer exists. He only half existed to begin with, end quote. So like I said, Norman was forced to assume Norma's identity to keep her alive. He has no other resources at his disposal to recreate the facade. The truth has been exposed, and if the only world in which he can live is one where he alone believes his logic, which equates to psychosis, then he'll do that. So Norman has descended into psychosis, allowing himself to believe he's Norma and Norma alone. That still allows him to indulge a split psychology. Physically, he's still Norman Bates, but emotionally, he'll be mother from now on. Now, you can be a psychopath or sociopath and function in society because you use deception and disregard in your actions with others. You're not crazy, so to speak, in a way that the logic you offer people only makes sense to you alone. But psychosis is different. Its process involves abandoning social norms. 
you can't pretend to abide the contract of civility like the psychopath or sociopath. The psychotic person creates a barrier between their logic and the rest of the world. It's a coping mechanism. That's the only place Norman can go to prevent himself from facing the truth. So the psychiatrist then says, now the other half has taken over, meaning Norma. And then he adds to that sentence with a sigh, probably for all time. So the psychiatrist is clearly confirming that Norman has descended into a state of psychosis. He confirms Marion and Arbogast are dead and can be found in the swamp. But that's not all. There were others, young women. Norma was jealous of them, too. The psychiatrist then dropped the bombshell that it wasn't Norma who committed a murder-suicide involving herself and her lover, but Norman was the one who killed them to ensure this man couldn't take his mother away from him. She'd have to stay. The man says Norman had been dangerously disturbed since his father died. In essence, this is an assertion that the absence of his father made him far too dependent and attached to his mother, who was aggressive and domineering. He says she was clingy and demanding. She and Norman lived for years as though there was no one else in the world. But then she met this man, and things changed. Norman felt like he was being pushed out of the picture, so he killed them both. He wasn't able to grow emotionally, and thereby couldn't deal with the thought of being without his mother, so he erased the crime by assuming her identity. In his own mind, of course. He dug her up from her grave and took her home, but since she didn't speak or act, he was still lonely. It wasn't the same. So he gave her life. Half of his personality became her, and suddenly she was with him again. Obviously, we can see how that emotional problem manifested physically. When his mother took a lover, it was a sign for him to grow up and do the same. But the early loss of his father, combined with his mother's overbearing ways through the years, left him emotionally trapped in childhood. Norman was scared to change. Now, there's an interesting psychology behind the reason why that happens. I'll explain this from my perspective since the psychiatrist doesn't elaborate on it. When we have unresolved issues from childhood that are emotionally painful and don't change to transcend them as adults, the reason for that loyalty to the dysfunction is that if you remain in childhood, there will always be hope things can change. But if you move on to adulthood, those issues become the past. And the number one thing that haunts all of us, without question, is the past. Once you decide to change and move on, that hope of fixing your childhood disappears. It becomes the past instead of the present. You can only reap the benefits in adulthood. So sometimes people refuse to grow up because they don't want to feel the full weight and transparency of the horrors they experienced as kids. If they remain children emotionally, then that hope it can be fixed is never truly gone. And in that light, we see Norman was desperately holding on to one thing. Hope.
one way or another? We're all doing that. We use hope to diminish the crushing feeling of loss. That loss consists of what's behind us and also what lies ahead. Sometimes it's too difficult to face the truth down the road and in the rear view, then change to accommodate the emotional hardships. We freeze. We get stuck. It happens to all of us. Maybe not like it did to Norman, but we can all empathize. And that's scary. Truly frightening. Because the psycho Hitchcock is referencing is not just Norman Bates, or even Marion Crane going off the deep end. It's all of us. We are all feeling this pain. The human condition is ever-present in our minds. Anyhow, Norman killed these young women in the context of being his mother because he needed a way to justify the denial of his sexual desires as an adult, which would prevent him from remaining in childhood if he acted upon them. He needed to be loyal to the dysfunction, in the same way he killed his mother and her lover to prevent her from leaving, the mother half of his personality killed the young women for the same purpose. No lover would break them apart ever again. Now, I'm not a psychology professional of any sort, but if we want to label this disorder Norman suffers, I believe the appropriate selection is Oedipus Complex. That's when a child's has feelings of desire for a parent of the opposite sex while simultaneously having feelings of anger and or jealousy for the same-sex parent. Norman was angry at his father for dying and leaving him alone with a clingy and overbearing mother. But due to that inseparable bond that grew with Norma, he developed feelings for her as he physically matured. Undoubtedly, she felt it too. It's not explicitly stated in the film, but it's somewhat implied their relationship might have been sexual. So, the psychiatrist goes on to say that Norman, at times, could be both personalities and carry on a conversation. Now, think back to the conversation he had with Marion in the back parlor at the base motel. Remember how I said Norman kept shifting back and forth in his seat, alternately leaning back and leaning forward with changes in his emotional state? that suggested the concept of shifting? That's what the psychiatrist means. He could shift back and forth emotionally. Of course, the swinging light bulb represents the same shift. It was out of control. So was he. Evolution swarming to detect the truth, a.k.a. light, caused him to keep shifting to accommodate. The light bulb being out of control symbolizes that emotional state. And take notice of what the light literally does when the bulb keeps swinging. It redirects. Redirection of light. Remember that concept? That's what had gotten out of control. He couldn't keep redirecting the light. It was coming from all angles. Evolution was swarming. There were too many people out to learn the truth. So, the psychiatrist finishes running his mouth and lights a cigarette. At that moment, a uniformed cop walks in and asks, He feels a little chill. Can I give him this blanket? The psychiatrist says, Sure. And this is just a ploy to set up the final shot. 
the image we should depart with is one in which Norman's transformation is complete. We haven't seen him only as mother. The lesson is complete only with that. So the cop walks down the hallway. Another cop guarding a door lets him inside a room. Off screen, we hear mother say thank you. The cop in the room immediately walks back out, and the guy who let him in the room locks the door behind him. From there, Hitchcock cuts to the inside of that white-walled cell with one window covered in bars. There's nothing else in the room except a chair. In that chair, we see Norman Bates wrapped in the blanket. If this says anything, it's that he's trapped with nothing to cope like he used to have. Asking for the blanket and wrapping himself in it symbolizes his need for emotional comfort and protection from the outside world that he can't indulge any longer. It serves as a symbolic barrier. Now, this is where we get a monologue from Mother in voiceover. Again, Norman is in a state of psychosis, so he's only going to be able to utilize his faulty logic on himself. The truth has come to the surface, and he can no longer deceive society. He can only lie to himself to seek the emotional comfort he couldn't find through change. So, as he's sitting there with a frown on his face and begins this internal monologue as mother, he convinces himself that he's really mother from a physical standpoint sitting in that chair and that she's the one the cops are after. Mother goes on to tell us that she's harmless and a fly lands on Norman's hand at this time. She says to herself, I'm not even going to swat that fly. She believes the cops are probably watching, and that means they'll see, and they'll know, that she wouldn't even harm a fly. Right then, Norman starts to smile. The frown turns upside down. He believes he can still fool the world about the truth. So in the same way he was trapped in the motel, and trapped in his childhood, using hope, as his only coping mechanism, he's doing the same thing now. Only he and mother know the truth. But he's only able to believe that due to descending into psychosis. That's why it happens in voiceover and the manipulation of these cops never materializes. The world in which his mother, Norma Bates, is still living and breathing only exists in his head. He's trapped in there. But as long as they are together, hope remains. And if there was ever a greater truth, I don't know what that would be. When it comes right down to it, all we have in this life is the love we feel for each other. Nothing else matters. But the right way to live is to indulge the heavy emotional lifting it takes to bring the truth to light from its hiding place beneath the murky waters of the swamp. So to teach us that lesson, or even just remind us, the final image we see is the tow truck chain pulling Marion's car out of the swamp next to the base motel. But if there's anything about this film that resonates with me, above all else, it's the fact that, at least metaphorically, we are all alone and isolated in a place in our heads 
One where we run a motel, with empty cabins that cater to the dead, to what was and will never be again. People come into our lives, and for many reasons, up to and including death, they leave and never return. But we remain in that place, alone, changing the sheets, working the front desk, desperately hoping. The dead are often buried in the ground or cremated to ashes, but no matter their physical fate, they continue to live in our minds as emotional roadblocks. We desperately hold on to who and what we deem indispensable and give them new life within our thoughts. But their love is no longer, nor is their light. They're just fading memories. And isn't it funny that we hold on tightest to the things that are already gone? Sometimes the fear, heartache, and regret are all that we have left. But when we don't let go of the past, it takes permanent residency in our thoughts. One time as a kid, when I was in middle school, I missed the bus going home as it pulled away from the building. I remember running after it and yelling because it was right in front of me, but the driver couldn't hear my cries, so I stopped following it. But as I watched the bus pull off into the distance, another bus driver called out to me. He was about to leave as well and wanted to know where I needed to be dropped off. I told him, and he said he could do it, but I'd be the last stop because the location would cause him to divert from his local route. So I was thankful. I hopped on board, yet the bus was so full I couldn't even find a seat. A kid near the back waved to me and pointed at a spot next to him, so I approached. I didn't know him, but we struck up a conversation about baseball. And then the boy in front of us turned around and he joined the conversation too. Soon enough, they were encouraging me to join the team at school because it was a lot of fun. And then there was the girl, a few seats ahead, that I'd been crushing on for a while, but I was too shy to talk to her. She caught me looking during the baseball conversation and smiled at me. I don't know what that smile meant, but it gave me butterflies. I felt so alive. And then her friend looked back, and she giggled a bit. I was embarrassed and ashamed, but not even sure why. I was just so anxious right then. But that's when an argument broke out between two other boys I knew were brothers. The bus got quiet. The sense of fear washed over everyone. And that's when they started punching each other. I remember the chaos. Some people screaming, others yelling to stop, and yet still some who were cheering it on. I jumped in to break it up and felt the force of the two going after each other. One of the combatants' elbows got cut on a window latch 
and there was blood smeared on the glass. It was also dripping onto the back of the seat ahead. Right then, a small boy who never spoke, but got excellent grades, stood up and took off his shirt. It was a white t-shirt he gave to the bleeding boy to cover the wound. The shirtless kid looked so scrawny in that moment. I pictured him living in a chicken coop and cocking his head back and forth while searching for feed on the ground. Of course, the bus driver was pissed. He pulled the bus over and started yelling about calling parents. He made his way down the long aisle to point a finger in everybody's face and say he expected nothing but the best behavior the rest of the ride or he'd call everybody's parents right at that moment. He looked at the bleeding kid's wound and noticed it was basically superficial. But when he did, I stared deeply into his eyes, in his ignorance. I had heard he was a raging alcoholic outside of school, and wanted to see if I could identify lingering pain in his soul. When he went back to his seat, and the bus pulled away, two girls seated behind him started to sing. The momentum got others involved, and soon enough, the bus became a cacophonous tin can in which the world's worst singers resided. But it was hilarious. And that's when the bus reached its first stop. Those two girls got off, and soon the singing subsided. The bus rumbled on down the road, and I watched another boy reading a book off to my left. I couldn't see the cover and didn't know if I had read the book too, but I wanted to know where it had taken him. He was lost, somewhere. I stared at him. He was entrenched in the words, embracing the experience. Right then, a friend of the girl I had a crush on suddenly stood up to imitate how her date to the recent formal dance had been dancing like such an idiot and said it caused her so much embarrassment. People were laughing and joined in on the fun. I began laughing too, and suddenly, for some reason, I thought she was really cute. But then her friend I had the crush on smiled at me. But when she did, she realized I was looking at her friend. And she never looked at me again after that. Something about it was so fragile. I wanted to talk to her, but I was so afraid, and that made me like her more. There's something about fear that's so enticing. That's when the friend asked if I know how to dance. She asked me to get up and join her to pretend I was the guy she went to the formal with. I didn't know if she was making fun of me, or just noticed me smiling and wanted to get to know me. But I refused, even though I really wanted to impress her and make her laugh. Even more, I wanted to impress the other girl and make her jealous. Yet, the guy I was sitting with suddenly stood up and offered to do it in my place. And he did. They made everybody laugh, and then he sat next to her and talked the rest of the ride. I couldn't stop watching them, or even hating myself for being too scared to act. Regret just washed over me. 
That's when a tennis ball hit me in the head. People started laughing. I picked it up out of my lap and noticed the kid who threw it. The driver looked in the mirror at the laughing, but when he looked away, I threw the ball back as hard as I could. It missed the kid and bounced all over the bus, causing the driver to yell, Knock it off! He wanted to know who threw it, but no one would talk. He said he'd find out that it was only a matter of time, and it was really funny, but we tried not to laugh. Some boy who was seated a row up and off to my left gave me a high five for the effort and invited me to his birthday party. I smiled at his sister sitting next to him, but she was a year older and thought I was gross. It made me want to get to know her. I wanted to knock down that barrier. I didn't know why. But suddenly, what I realized is that this busload of people, even if only for a flash, here and gone again, were my family. We were in this together. The laughing, the pranks, the smiles, the fights, the bleeding, the yelling, the driver's offer to help, and his subsequent threats, the girl thinking I was gross, and so on. We were all there. In that moment, a virtual family inside a bus, symbolizing a house. There were lovers, fighters, sinners, dreamers, introverts, extroverts, boys, girls, and anything else you can imagine. But more importantly, we were all there. We were in that journey together. I was scared, hopeful, sad, happy, anxious, desperate, loved, rejected, and curious. Every feeling a person could have was swirling around within my young existence. But most of all, I was alive. I could feel. We all could. No one could take that away. And that's when the bus stopped at a corner, its brakes screeching. Three boys and two girls I didn't notice along the trip got off the bus. I didn't know them, so it shouldn't have been a big deal. But silence shrouded the interior of the vehicle. The bus started moving again after they got off, and everybody began to socialize. But you could see they were missing. The empty seats were staring right at me. I knew what was coming next. And that's when it happened. The bus stopped again. This time, the two brothers who got in a fight exited the vehicle with approximately seven other students. The empty seats were growing in number, and a few of the students moved around to accommodate. Instead of being cramped together in one seat, they spread out on their own. And the bus after letting those kids off, pulled away again. It continued to rumble down the road. 
three minutes later, it stopped again, and the kid who invited me to his birthday party got off, along with his sister. I said goodbye, and I'd see them both Saturday. So the bus pulled away again, and this time I realized it was half empty. The noise inside had died down, and the chemistry that had caused the atmosphere to be so wild and electric was gone. I turned to the kid reading the book and noticed him finishing the last page. As he did, he paused a moment to consider and then closed the book. I opened my mouth to ask him where the story had taken him. But before I could speak, the bus stopped again. He stood up and departed with some others. And I never knew the answer to that question. At this point, I realized the bus was about 75% empty. So I turned to the guy sitting next to me, who had earlier offered me a seat, and wondered aloud, Do you think I should ask out that girl? as I nodded to the two girls I'd had my eye on before. He responded with a question. Which one? That's when the bus stopped again. I stood up to approach the girls, but it turns out this was their stop. They got off the bus. Even though I walked toward them, their backs were turned. They never saw me. And then they were gone. So I went back to my seat, noticing there were only seven students left on the bus. I sat in silence next to the kid who had offered me the seat in the first place. That energetic ambiance that existed only ten minutes earlier was gone, as though it had never been a reality. So this kid next to me he was looking out the window at cars passing by, and I did the same. It was peaceful. There was no need to put on a show. Nobody left to impress. And that's when the bus stopped again. My stomach dropped as I saw the kid next to me stand up and express that this was his stop. He waved and walked off. I wanted to ask if he'd like to hang out that weekend, but found myself scared, so I said nothing. That kid walked off the bus with a handful of others, and soon the bus departed again. Yet this time, it was just me and a girl from class who walked on crutches, though I didn't know why she used crutches. I only knew from gym class that it gave her incredible upper body strength and that she could do more pull-ups than most of the boys. So I wanted to know. Or maybe she was just the last person around. And I truly didn't care until that moment. So I stood up and approached her. The bus driver promptly told me to stay in my seat while the bus is moving. And I saw the girl look back at me, as though she knew somehow 
that I was coming to her. I could see she wanted to know why. But I just sat there. I returned her look, though I didn't say anything, because I was afraid. That's when the bus stopped again. She looked away, stood, and exited the vehicle. As it drove off, I smiled at her, though she wasn't looking my way. Suddenly, she turned back as though she could feel it, but I stopped smiling. I don't know why. That's when the bus drove off, with my eyes still positioned out the window looking at her. But as it did, she faded in the distance. I kept watching life go by. The cars, people, even a stray dog. Everything was bursting with color and sound. Alive. And yet, in conflict, I drifted off into a daydream, thinking of the future, about who I would become. And that's when the bus stopped again. But I didn't realize it. I just sat there, all of the things passing by outside the window were now stagnant frozen in place. I heard somebody speaking to me, but couldn't place the voice. Suddenly, it got louder, and I snapped out of my trance. I realized it was the bus driver. I could see his face looking back at me from the rearview mirror. He said, This is your stop, kid. It took a moment to process. I looked around the bus and noticed I was alone. The driver waited for me to act, but I just sat there, unsure why I didn't want to leave. There was nothing left for me here, but I still refused to let go. I didn't know why. The bus driver said, This is you, kid. End of the line. So I stood, my knees weak, and I walked the long corridor between the rows of empty seats all the way to the front of the bus. The driver pulled the lever to open the door. I paused right there, looking at him. I knew he could see the longing in my eyes. He understood what was happening. And he said, It's time to go home. And I knew he was right. I looked back at the empty rows of seats and the dreadful silence looming, and remembered that this place 
had once been full of life, but now it was gone. It passed me by, like the scenery outside the windows. I stepped down off the bus and turned back to look at the driver's face. I could see it then, the hard truth that drove him to drink. I could see the past in his eyes. I put up a hand to wave goodbye, but he merely shut the door and drove away. The bus faded into the distance, yet I watched it go until it disappeared forever. I stood there, alone on the corner, confused and unsure of what just happened. I had a feeling I wanted others to understand. But there was no one left with whom I could share this heartache. I didn't even know how to articulate what I wanted to say. So I said nothing and told no one. But on that lonely walk home, trapped in my thoughts, with nowhere to go but forward. I had a profound realization of truth. And while I remained isolated, in quiet desperation, I whispered a single wisdom. That's life. Okay, another witness for the defense. Call Todd Mollis. Do you swear and affirm that the testimony you give in this matter will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yes. Go ahead and have a seat. State your name, please. Todd Michael Mollis. Go ahead, counsel. Mr. Mullis, uh, where is your home? Um, kind of northwest of Earlville, yeah. on a farm. Do you know what the mail address is? Yes, it's 1722 255th Avenue in Earlville. How old are you? I'm 43. What's the extent of your education? I graduated high school. Where did you attend high school? Um, Coca Valley in Delhi. Tell us uh, a little bit about your family. Are your parents still alive? Yes, my parents, uh, Leroy and Elaine, are alive. They live just north of Burbell. And uh, I got two, two brothers and two sisters. 
What are your brother's names? Um, Mike and Pat are my brothers. And sisters? Lori and Lynn. Do you have children? Yes, I have three children. Names? Uh, Tristan, Taylor, and Wyatt. And tell us a little bit about um, your occupation. Um, I, I farm crops. Um, we got a hog operation, a custom feeding operation where we raise out pigs for a company, uh, JBS now. Um, I sold chemicals, farm chemicals, on the kind of the, on the side, I guess you'd say, as a substitute to earn more money. Um, and just, and then I, you know, we always helped, help each other, so we were busy. And your brother Mike just testified that you helped farm with, or you help his farming operation and he in return helps you. Yes, and we we also farm with my other brother Pat and dad. We we farm each other's ground. We go wherever it's needed, I guess. Okay. Let's go back in time a bit, uh, Todd. Um, how did you meet Amy? I met Amy at the Delaware County Fair in Manchester. Um, I think it was in 2003, and uh, I just met her at a, the beer tent or something like that. Okay. So it wasn't like it was a blind date or? No, it was not. How long did the two of you date before marrying? Uh, it would have been, I'd say, well, it would have been about 14 months. And where were you living when you met her? I was living at the same farm in where I live now. Where was she living? She was, at the time was living in Cedar or Marion or Cedar Rapids. I don't remember which one it was. Was she employed when you met her? Yes. What was she doing? She was working as, uh, a, I think it was a, a Bookkeeper in St. Luke's, I can't remember. She was changing stuff at that time. I, it's hard to remember exactly what position she held. So when you got married, um, she moved into the family farm? Yes, she did. Did you own that property when you got married? Yes, I did. And what did you know about Amy's background in terms of where where did she grow up? Was she a, a farm girl or or a city girl or what? Uh, yes, we. Uh, I knew she told me right away she grew up in Eldora on a farm um, that her dad lived there. Um, she didn't spend a lot of time talking about other places she was other than live, growing up in Eldora and then ending up in Cedar Rapids area. Now, what year did you get married? Um, in 04. So at that time, did you have these hog buildings on the farm? 
Not at the time, no. Were, were you were you strictly a row crop, crop operation, or did you have cattle? Uh, at the time, I was. We had dairy cattle at what I would consider my brother Mike's farm, and I was sharing the labor load there, helping that. And we but we had hogs on a bunch of different farms, but it was in small buildings, and then row crops. Did Amy seem to settle in all right to farm life? She seemed almost ecstatic about it. I mean, she was, she wanted to move in right away, I guess, is what you'd say. Did, do you have interest in outside of farming? In other words, sports, music, uh, hunting, fishing, that kind of stuff? Yes, I I like I love to hunt and fish. Uh, in general, be outdoors. I mean, if it's tubing in a creek somewhere or canoeing or just various four wheeling anything outside. How about Amy? What were her interests? She liked the same things. Um, you know, from what I always understood, she she loved it. She she loved being outdoors. She liked being outside. Did you, the two of you ever hunt together? Yes, a what, lot. What kind of hunting? Oh, uh, we did a lot of deer hunting, squirrel hunting, turkey hunting, I, and all kinds of hunting, coyote hunting. Was this all with a firearm, or was there bow and arrow also? It was a bow, bow and arrow, and, and shotgun. At some point, did Amy seek and obtain employment off the farm? Off the farm? Right. Did she work somewhere in town? Oh, yes. Yeah, she she was, uh, well, she started off at St. Luke's, and then she worked there until, I can't remember exact year, but then she went to uh, to Manchester because it was closer. And we were having kids, you know, and then she she moved or she switched to work up to there. What what was her did did she have a degree in something? She started off, um, I think it was some type of a, a lower level nurse or a secretary, but then she got her LPN and then uh she almost immediately went after her R N and then she was a registered nurse after that. Where did she get her R N training at? At Kirkwood. And that training occurred after your marriage? I think she was actually pursuing that when we met. Okay. Todd, I'd like to then move forward to uh, approximately four to five years ago in time and we've heard a lot of testimony about Amy having an affair. You recall that? Yes. And was she working at the Manchester Hospital when that happened? Yes, she was. And um, we heard Terry Stainer talk about uh, 
her and Amy had been were good friends at that time? What what year was that? Now, when when this first affair? Occurred. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And after you learned of that situation, um, did what what did you and Amy do about it? Um. Well, basically, after we you know I, I discovered it, I we decided. I mean, immediately that she she wanted to uh, make it you know. Quit her affair. Go to counseling. She was sorry. I mean, and then wholeheartedly work it out. Terry testified that she encouraged you to both get counseling. Is that was that true? Terry encouraged. Uh, this was before I discovered that she wanted her to, to Amy to go to counseling because she was sad or you know. Depressed. This is before I knew about it, and then after I found out, Amy and I looked up a counselor out of a out of the phone book, basically, but it was in Cedar Rapids. But Terry did encourage both of us to go. Okay. Did the counseling that you uh, obtained did that seem to help? Yes, uh, we didn't go very long, but I was having, I was, it really helped me to get a start, you know. Did Amy seem to be all in on correcting the situation and moving in the right direction? Yes. Were you satisfied that she wanted to stay married and? Would be faithful? Yes. Was there any direction given to you by this counselor as to how to work on your marriage as you went forward? Yes, there was several suggestions. Uh, she said uh, Amy had to basically uh, be accountable for her what she was doing. She, you know, if she was to go somewhere, you know, it was just courtesy to let me know. Um, to, you know, be open. Don't hold anything back. If she had a problem, talk about it. Um, just that in general, just to be open. And uh, did you? Did the two of you try to practice that to be open with each other? Yes, we did. Did you? Did you talk about it? Yes, we talked about everything. I mean, if there was anything on our mind, we talked about it. It was. Did she seem comfortable with that? Objection calls for speculation. Uh, I'll let him talk about his observations. Go ahead. Yes, uh, it, it got a lot. I mean, every week that went by and every conversation went by, it was easier, and and it really helped. It really, it really progressed well. Okay. It's been talked about or mentioned by a couple witnesses that um, Amy complained to them that you were keeping too close of con uh, control or too close of contact with her when she was not with you. Did she ever complain to you about that? No, she never complained to me about it. 
it was uh, actually her idea almost all the time to, if she went to town, she would just say, hey, headed to town, got to stop at, you know, this place, this place, and this place. I don't, you know, just depended on where she was going. You know, and just it was just real simple. Here's where I'm at. Should shouldn't be, take long. I'll be home. Was this things mostly, like that? Was this mostly being communicated back and forth by by cell phones and text messages? Yes, either a call or a text. You spent a lot of time working farming. Yes. What would be a normal day starting? Time-wise, it depends a little on the sorry. It depends a little on the time of year. Um, on an average day, when I'm not not doing field work, I'd say seven o'clock usually. You know, just just depending on the time of year. Six thirty, seven o'clock, and then uh, it was usually just go out. You know, take care of the the. Uh, hog chores, then usually we went over to our, another site and did the hog chores there. Usually I was communicating with my brother or dad about if they had anything going on with the beef operation, and it was just kind of a communication thing day by day, and then we always stayed busy doing something. Would you generally have a family meal in the evening? Almost every night. Okay. After this, I'll, I'll keep calling it the first affair. Uh, did the did your farming situation or your farming plan change? Yes, uh, Amy. It was after we went to counseling for a little bit. Amy came to me and said. I would really like to quit my job. I think by being home with the kids and you and not having to work weekends, we could spend more weekends together. She could be a stay-at-home mom, which she wanted to be, if, if there was any possibility to that. So at that time, I pursued building another hog barn to hopefully make a little bit of money so to substitute her quitting her job. And we went went forward with that plan. Okay. When was the first hog barn built? That was in 2012. Can I can I add something to that too? I we also expanded on we sold I sold chemicals on the side, and when she moved back home, she she took the books for it and. Got it on a computer system, and which helped expand that operation also. Okay. In 2015, did you also acquire some uh, ownership in some more land? Yes. 2016. Yeah. Or roughly, yes. It was uh, there was a farm up by Greeley that uh, my brother and dad and. Amy and I purchased a farm up there at an auction. And was that all uh, work ground, farm ground? No, it was 
actually there's a there's a nice timber there on the one side of the road. There's some set aside acres, I guess you'd call them, where it's grass, I guess, and but there's recreational ground and and uh, work ground together. Was there a house and buildings there? No. Okay. Was there any part of that farm that had a special interest for you and Amy? Yes. The uh, on the timber side, it was a uh, we uh, had a pond. We would there was an old pond there, and we we redid it and made it a real nice big pond. And we planted a bunch of trees where we planned to build a log cabin. And did you have a year in mind or a time in your family's life when you wanted to build that cabin? Not not at first, but every time we would go up there, it seemed to be brought up more and more and more. And I think she was getting the itch to do it. I want to back up a little bit, perhaps. Um, you talked about going from where you live in, in your ground to uh, another site to do chores and stuff. Was was there ever any ownership in that other site or partial ownership? Yes, I had a partial ownership in that. And is, is that with your dad, Mike? Yes. In February of 2018, was there some transfer of ownership or titling of property change that occurred? Yes, where I currently live, there was a, a small parcel where the house and the machine shed and some grain bins were that was in my parents' possession, and it got transferred to Amy and I. Did you actually buy from them, or they just transferred it? It was a it was a purchase. Okay. And that property, and you, and I, my notes indicate that was in February of 2018. Yes. Okay. At some point in your marriage, was the the home remodeled? Yes, in uh, the spring of 2013, we uh, I I proceeded myself in kind of gutting the house. The kitchen, living room, um, and remodeling the whole inside. Was, was that before or after Amy's affair? It was actually before and during. Did you force her to quit the hospital? No, I did not. She wanted to. She requested it, yes. After the counseling that you jointly sought, uh, she was now an at-home mom. Uh, how would you describe her feeling about that? In other words, was she, did she seem comfortable with that? She seemed overwhelmingly happy. She 
she loved it. From the time of that first affair and the, the rather dramatic changes that, that you two made in your lives after that, up until the summer of 2018, did you have any concerns about you and Amy and your marriage? No. Did, did Amy participate in activities apart from you and the, and the farm during those years? Yes, she was, uh, she liked to, to do the, EM, uh, the EMS voluntarily in Earlville. She liked to do that. She liked to go golfing with, with Terry. Um, pork producers, when she got into that, she, she always liked to do something with other people. Did she, at some point, uh, take a houseboat trip with some friends? Yes, that was, I think she was still working when she took that trip, okay. but she did take a trip. Uh, I believe there was some mention in some of the, your documents of trip, a trip to Alaska. Yes, she, uh, she went with Randy and Peggy and Tristan, and they went to Alaska for uh, I think it was a Ducks Unlimited thing with Randy, and they went up there for uh, several days. Okay. A trip to Florida? Yes, that was in uh, June of 2018. She went to Florida for Taylor's Gymnastics uh, now, Nationals. During these years, was Amy's mom always living in the Ankeny area? Yes. Did she have regular visits with her? Yes. Did you always go with her? No, I did not. Would it be more often that you did not go than if you did? Yes. Would would the children usually go with her if she was going to see her mom? It usually depended um, on the situation. And over the years, it's changed as far as who went with her. Why did it change? The kids got older. When they were younger, Actually, when, well, when the kids were younger, though, she was still working, and she didn't really get down there that much. But when she quit, then she would, she quit working. Then it w if there was any kids go, it would usually be Taylor or Wyatt or both. Okay. Would some of those trips be associated later on, at least, with Taylor's tumbling? Yes. And were most of these things that you just described, golfing, lunches, trips, and so forth, those were being done without you being with her? Yes. And was were you comfortable with that occurring? Yeah, I actually encouraged it. Now stepping ahead to July or summer of 2018, um, Mr. Frazier has indicated that you contacted him, and it had to do with him and Amy. Do you recall that testimony? Yes. And you're not denying you made such a call? No, I'm not. I made the call. What?
prompted you or what brought that call about? Uh, I had noticed that uh, she was just acting a little different and and uh, I, I had looked at a, at a phone records and I seen there was a large number of communications with him and I just wanted to know what that was about. I was kind of curious. I wanted to know what, what was going on. Was it was it true that Amy and, and Jerry had a legitimate basis to communicate about the hog operation? Yes. But this, this amount of communication seemed excessive to you? It did to me, yes. When you contacted Jerry, um, what did he say? He just said, uh, he goes, really, it's that many? Oh, well, she's been texting me a lot, asking about show pigs, and she, I know she wants to get your kids involved in, in show pigs. And it was just a lot of communication that way. And then I think she, I think he said that Amy was asking him questions about gymnastics because Taylor was in gymnastics and his daughter was in gymnastics, and I think there was some talk about that too. Just general hog stuff or gymnastics stuff, kid stuff. Okay. Did he assure you that there was nothing inappropriate going on? Yeah, he, he said, I guarantee you there's nothing going on. Do you accept that? Yes, I, I did, but I was a little, just a tad bit, tad bit unsure yet. And what did that unsureness lead you to do? I asked, I, I, was, I called Eileen. I think I, uh, I, I had texted Terry about it, too, and I said, hey, I just wanted to make sure that I'm not out of line, you know, thinking that. And then, and then Eileen said, well, I kind of asked her what she thought. She was, well, I'd call. I'd just call his wife and see what's going on. And I, I had also communicated with Randy, too, at that time, what he thought. He just, he just kind of said, well, I don't know. So did you contact Jerry's wife? Yes, I did. And did what was her reaction? At first she sounded curious, and then uh, she goes, I'll, I'll, I'll look into it. And then I go, well, I just wanted to just wanted to see, I just want to put, put that to rest. And then I, and that was about, about it. Did you at some point contact both Jerry and his wife and apologize for ups possibly upsetting them? Yes, I did. I, I uh, After talking to them, I was like, you know what? They both were not, I mean, they sounded very convincing. And his wife said, I don't see why there's anything would be going on. And after that, I just said, I'm sorry that bugged you. I hope I didn't cause any troubles between you. Did this exchange between you and Jerry and his wife interfere with your relationship with Jerry as the field manager for the hogs? No. Did he continue to come to your farm on a regular basis? Yes, same as always. And would you normally be the person that he would deal with? Yes. 
was there ever any uh, did you did you ever get to a point with Jerry that you felt comfortable enough to talk about things other than business like hunting fishing sports yeah we we talked kind of about everything he had a he would say I got a buddy that farms and he would talk about that or he would talk about his show pigs and how they were performing or how good he wanted to do at the state fair and just general okay. other things. Certainly a friendly relationship. Yeah, we got along good. Todd, from the witnesses and text messages and so forth that we have seen introduced here, it appears that around the end of August of 2018, Amy contacted you indicating that there may be rumors about her behavior again. Yes. And how, how, how did the two of you deal with that? She approached me and asked and told me, she goes, um, told me about there might be some stuff going around, Terry, let me know that there's some rumors flying around. You know how people are. Um, she asked me who I had talked to. And I just told her, well, I only I only talked to Jerry and his wife and Eileen and Randy. And then uh, she was concerned at how they could get started. So we talked about that, like, well, who could have started that? Kind of went back and forth like that for a little bit. And, and she said, well, I just wanted you to know. So if you hear something, you know, don't don't believe it, you know. And then I'm like, well, for crying out loud, you know. And then I just kind of... Thought about it, I guess, for a day or two, and then let it go. Everything seemed okay. Yeah. Okay. And this was around. I think we we narrowed it down by phone calls and, and text messages. This would have been around the last day or two of August, first of September. Does that yeah, sound right? it was right around that time. Yes. Amy's grandfather had died, or grandmother had died that summer. Yes, Grandma Margaret died. And where was where was she living or hospitalized or wherever her death occurred? She was she was in a uh, she lived in Eldora and had fallen broken her hip earlier, and then she went to the old age home and then then she got sick from there and died in uh, died in Eldora. Okay. Did you attend the funeral? Yes. The weekend, the funeral, yes. Did, was that the occasion that you met Patricia? Yes, I met her the day before the funeral at the wake. Had Grandma's illness and, and the, the fall and injury, had that caused Amy to be away from the farm some? Yeah, she went out when uh, she broke her hip. And uh, I can't remember the amount of days, but she was gone at that time. And then when she got sick, sick again, and she went out again and stayed for several days. And then she was out there when she actually passed. When she was doing that with her grandma, were the kids going with her? No, the kids were with me.
Was there another health issue in Amy's family that followed? Yes, it was uh, her uncle Jerry. He uh, we were actually at a football game, Amy and I, and she got a call that from Randy about Jerry having a brain bleed on a golf course, and they had to haul him into a hospital and just wanted to let her know that. And did that result in a, in a fairly significant hospital care and followed by rehabilitation? Yes, it was uh, quite lengthy. I mean, it was uh, for a while there they didn't know if he was going to make it. And uh, they they took part of the skull out and things like that. And it was long hospitalization and recovery. Do you have an estimate of how many times Amy might have went down to, that was in Des Moines, right? Yes. How many times she might have visited down there checking on him? I think she was gone in close to 30 days out of a couple months. So almost half the time she was there? I'm, I'm, I'm estimating it, yes, but it was. I think it was close to 30 days. Was she, was she taking the kids there? No. Was her absence from the farm and the kids uh, somewhat of a concern on your part? Not at first. Um, I tried to just be understanding about it, but then it was kind of, it seemed to be dragging on a little bit. It's like, well, I mean, I, I was asking her, well, he's got kids too, maybe they could share the load a little bit and help help us at home, you know, because we had a lot going on. We had, you know, four buildings of hogs going out, plus the harvest was going to start, and it was, I was kind of swamped, and I, you know, getting the kids run around and to football practice and home and all that. Okay. Did... Did you discuss that with Amy, that it was starting to kind of wear Yeah, Yeah, I kind of slight, uh, I mentioned it, mentioned it, but I didn't really press the issue. There were some text messages that we saw that between you and Terry, I think it was Terry, where you, this topic was coming up about her being away and not helping around, around mm -hmm. home when she was at home and that kind of thing. Yeah. Were you concerned about anything else, though, other than the fact that she was gone a lot? No. I was just, like I said, I was just, I was kind of swamped, and that's when I, probably when I, I text her and I go, I think, you know, I was overloaded with work, and I just wanted some help, so I wanted to know if she had any suggestions, but other than that, no. Okay. Did... Did you become aware that Amy had, I call it, a, a kind of a run-in with your mother about this? Yes. What happened, that, as far as you know? Um, as far as I know, uh, I had my son Wyatt at my mom's because I, did, you know, we were harvesting, and I had my daughter Taylor with me, and Tristan was with Mike, and I was commenting corner, and I got a call and. And Amy told me she was kind of upset. She said, your, your mom 
blew up at me or something, you know, to that effect, that she said I was a bad mom. And she didn't want me to take Wyatt. And she didn't want to stand for that. And I, I agreed with her. Do you recall sending a text that you perhaps meant to send to Tristan, but it ended up going to Amy that something to the effect that, she, that Amy was crazy? No. You don't remember that? No, I did not. I I was actually told Eileen that there must have been a fight. Or, I, I, I sent Eileen a text that there must have been a fight. Amy, got, Amy and Mom got in a fight, and Mom, Mom wanted her out of the house. Okay. Did... Did you ever have words with your mother about what she had said and done? Yes, immediately. Did you uh, stick up for Amy? Yes, I did. I just I told her that there's, you can't talk to Amy that way. There's no reason for it. I know she's been gone a lot, but she's had a lot of trouble with her family, with health problems. you got to be understanding about that. And Mom, Mom agreed then. Okay. From the time that you had these contacts with Jerry and his wife, just to clear the air, up until the time of Amy's death, did you have any suspicions at all that she was having an affair? No. Other than the, the, the illnesses in the family and her absences that you just described, you you didn't sense that there was anything going on behind your back. No, I did not because she would she was also upset with her and being concerned for her mother, her mother Peggy, because she was stressed out from the loss of Margaret and now Jerry. You know, it was her, you know her her brother and her mother that she was overwhelmed and she was just stressed out from that. So if there was any stress signs from Amy. I attributed it to being concerned, her being concerned for her family, and then that. is that stress that you were witnessing the reason you were texting with Terry about getting her to counseling? Yes, I. Uh, there was also she was bleeding abnormally on her periods. She would bleed like that, and I'm going. There's there's just something going on with her. I I can't. I I would like to help her. But I don't know what, how to help her. In one of those text messages, you, it looked like you had done some research about menopause. Yes, I did. I was, I was concerned because she would say, I'm just bleeding again. I don't know what the heck's going on with me. And then she would have mood swings. And I was like, well, I'm not, I'm not a woman. So I, I looked it up, and, that, and there were symptoms on there that were consistent with what she was showing, so I showed it to Amy. The state introduced Exhibit 105, which is a partial history of Google searches on your Google account, toddmullis76 at gmail.com. Do you recall that? Yes. 
And you you had the iPad that your brother Mike spoke about this afternoon? Yes, it was that. Yes. Did you use that iPad a lot for research and and, and accomplishing basic farm uh, farm things, I guess I'll call them? Yeah. Did anyone else use that iPad? Yes. Who? Amy used it a lot for uh, downloading chemical bills. She kept track of the bills, so she would look on her email and get a bill. She would look on my email and get bills and enter them into the computer in the in the shop. That way she didn't have to run back and forth. And she would research uh, price quotes a lot. Um, Mike used it. I, I think my nephew used it. Was there a password to it? Yes. Did Amy have the password? Yeah, she's she's the one who actually entered, put it in for me. Okay. And was it possible on that iPad to to go from one Google account to another? Yes. Were you aware, or did you ever become aware, that Amy used that iPad to search for personal things like clothing or jewelry or that kind of thing? I didn't. I didn't watch her every time, but she could have. Yes. And you weren't. I assume you weren't contacting Google every month to get a printout of your activity. No, I didn't track what she was looking up or using it for. Okay. But you've looked through. States Exhibit 105. Yes. And today we uh, printed off a larger, more complete version of that uh, Google printout. And you've looked at that? Yes, I have. You were present when uh, Deputy Hemsworth testified that about certain searches about uh, cheating spouses and or cheating wives, that kind of thing. What, what are the, what? If did you do those searches? No, I did not. Did you know? It, do you know who did? I have no idea who looked that up. You, did you and Amy ever discuss topics like that between the two of you? If there was a movie or something, we might have talked about a little bit of something like that, but not extensively, no. Did the two of you enjoy together history programs? Yes, we watched History Channel a lot. Did that ever lead to a follow-up search by either one of you? Yes, quite often, actually. Did you and Amy both enjoy history of Native American and other Indian populations? Yes, we we both would watch a show and look stuff up. There were some searches, and I'll give you some examples. Um, one, I think it was on January 15th of 2018, where it, 
it, I, I don't have the exact wording in front of me, but but it was something to the effect of keeping your son from becoming a pussy. You remember that? I remember seeing it, yes. Did you do that search? No, I did not. Do you know if... Was there an issue in the home about uh, your son or sons having yes, issues? Was, there was an issue there when Wyatt was... There was a kid taking money from him on the bus or... He would take a snack, and he would take it from him, and we were discussing that because he would always, he'd always keep asking for money for breakfast, and we we kind of questioned him about it, and then uh, I think one of the other kids said, I think somebody's taking his money every day, and we both discussed like, hey, you know, we got to encourage him to stand up for himself. So you and Amy both discussed. Yes. That. There was mentioned that, that I, I believe that Tristan was made to quit the band because band people were pussies. Is that something you conveyed? No, I did not. Why did Tristan quit playing music? Or yes, music? he did. But it was that he just said he wanted to quit. You know, out of his own, out of you know, that's what he told me or us that he wanted to quit. Did he participate in other extracurricular activities other than band? Yes, he was in football. Did he enjoy football? He loved football, but he was starting to get more all the time. A close exam, and I don't think it's been mentioned, but uh, since it's part of the, uh, the exhibits, um, there were searches for a site called Pornhub. Are you familiar with that site? Yes. And what's on Pornhub, or what can you see on Pornhub? Um, adult videos. Okay. Did you ever watch adult videos on your iPad? Well, yeah, we both Amy and I did. Right. You did together. Yeah, we did. And how did how did how would that come about? Well, I, I'm not 25 anymore, I guess, and she wanted to go f make an hour or two out of it, I guess. We needed a little outside help, I guess you'd say. Okay. Kind of embarrassing. Yeah. Search that the deputy mentioned specifically um, on November sixth, uh, body organs, maps, and diagrams. Do you remember him talking about that? Yes. And th that was the day of Amy's surgery, right? Yes. And do you recall, did you do that search? Actually, it was my daughter Taylor and I were sitting on the couch, and she was asking uh, about mom's surgery and all sorts of questions. And we looked it up because it was easier to just show her. 
what was going on and where stuff was. And there was an issue this morning that we brought up about the time of these things. Like that search on November 6, 2018, on this says 1.48 and 27 seconds UTC. Did you do that search at 1.48 in the morning? No. Do you remember about what time of the night you, or what time of the day or night you did? I know it was, it was in the evening sometime. Okay. And have you looked at this UTC thing on, to figure out what it is? I just, from going by what you said before, that okay. it was an offset in time. All right. And you looked at some of these other ones and that offset would, would seem appropriate for other searches that were done? Yeah, I would say, yes. There was also some mention of searches about uh, starving to death, uh, drowning, floating, those kinds of things. Do you remember, the, did, did you do any of those searches? The drowning ones were with the kids and swimming. We were swimming in the pond and Tristan would, would uh, say, I can float so much better than Wyatt, and, and then they uh, looked it up when they got home. And there was some other searches about chest wounds, gaping chest wounds, uh, surviving in cold, uh, start a fire, that kind of thing. What were those about? That was actually, Taylor was going through a hunter education program, and it was an online thing, and uh, she was studying for it, and they had these questions on one on the computer, and I think, you know, it was Amy trying to help her out. It was all about a hundred education course. Approach. Yes. Todd, I'm going to hand you a document which has been marked by as Defendant's Exhibit NO. Would you take a look at that? page up at the upper left-hand corner on line three, what does it say? It says Google account toddmullis76 at gmail.com. And on line seven, what is the last entry date, uh, date shown? Uh, say that again. What On line seven, what is the date? Oh, 11-16 uh, of 2018. Go to the last page, please. On line 2,945, what's the date there? March 10th, 2017. Okay. And you've had a chance to just at least skim through this or review this. Yeah, I, I briefly looked it over. Okay. 
I'd like to have you go back to the front, but page down using that number in the left-hand column uh, and go to 347. Yes. And what's the date there? It's July 22nd, 2018. And what is the search for? Wedding dresses. Did you do a search for wedding dresses that no, day? No, I did not. Have you, have you ever searched for wedding dresses? I have never searched for wedding dresses. Okay. If you go down to um, few pages to 507 in the left-hand column. Okay. Found it. What's the date there? Um, July 3rd, 2018. And what's the search for there? Ohana tattoos. Did you ever search for a Ohana tattoo? No, I did not. Have you heard that name before? I hadn't until the other day. Here in the courtroom? Yes, in the courtroom with a text from PK, I believe, or between PK and Amy. Who do you mean by PK? Uh, Patricia Christopher. Chris I, I was always referring to her as PK. That's what Amy always called her. Go to uh, 517, please. Few lines down. That's July second. Yes. What's the search there? Ohana tattoos. And five eighteen. Or excuse me. Um, no, I was wrong there. I'm sorry. Did you ever do a Pinterest search? No. Do you know what Pinterest is? I have no idea what Pinterest is. Did you? Um. Go way down to two thousand five hundred ninety six. What's the date there? Uh, January 21st, 2018. And what's the search for there? It says uh, DNA testing, discreetly doing a DNA test without consent possible. What's the next one down? What's the search there for? It says how to do a DNA test without the father knowing. Did you ever do any searches about DNA testing? No, I did not. Did Amy ever talk to you about her doing such searches? No. Did she ever discuss at all with you any concern about DNA or some project she might be working on, anything like that? 
Norden. And I'm going to make you travel back to 432, I believe. Yes, 432. What's the date there? July 15th of 2018. And what's the search for? Zales.com. Did you ever search for Zales? No, I did not. Going up to the top of that page, 417. What's that search for? Case Jewelry. Is that a search by you? No, it was not. And I think I asked uh, the deputy this morning, there was searches for uh, hotels in the Newton area during the summer of 2018. Did you do those? No, I did not. Have you ever searched, to your memory, for hotels on your iPad? I've never searched for hotels. So, based on this review of the Google summary, do you agree with the deputy that it was only you doing these searches? I disagree with that. All right, uh, Mr. Mullis. We're going to move ahead now specifically to November 10th, 2018. And unfortunately, that was the day of Amy's death, correct? Yes. We heard from Tristan, yes, two days ago, I believe. I, but I want to ask you, what do you recall from basically getting up in the morning, what were your steps starting out? Uh, we got up. I think we kind of hung around the house just for 10 or 15 minutes. Just I was very tired yet from, you know, the harvest and things like that. But we uh, hung around the house. We, Tristan and I got dressed. We went took the truck and went over to the what we call the east site and we did chores over there we checked both barns went through them uh, when we were done with that we I briefly stopped and talked to Mike about uh, my nephew had did some ripping the night before chisel plowing you know I asked him hey do you think it'll work today and he said no so I said hey well I guess we got pigs coming next week, so we'll probably just go home and do that. And so why was the, the ripping or chisel plowing not appropriate that day? The ground was too froze. Uh, my nephew commented that when he got done the night before, he said, You're, it's not going to work. So you and Tristan went back to the home? Yes, we went back home. And we went in the house and ate some breakfast, and uh, 
we were just talking to, you know, kids, and Amy was sitting there doing a puzzle, and she asked what was up, and I said, well, we're going to go out and start getting the buildings ready. Do you remember there being any any uh, discussion topic about holidays? Oh, yes. She had mentioned that uh, Rainy and Peggy, on her side of the family, was having Thanksgiving. I can't remember exactly what day that was, but she, she said it was coming up in the coming week or two and wanted to know how that would work with us and the pigs and all that. Did you as a family generally spend, try to spend holidays with both sides of the family? Yes, we tried, yes. Okay. So when you, well, let me ask you this. This plan to go out and work in the hog barn to get things ready, was that something you just announced, or did you discuss it with Amy and Tristan, or tell us how that came about? Uh, actually, it was we had just walked in, and, and I think Tristan or Taylor or Amy mentioned to Tristan, I got a little breakfast left over, and what are you guys up to? And then I don't remember if it was me or Tristan said we're gonna go out and. Working hog barns, come ready. Because you and Tristan had already had that yes. topic when you when you decided not to do the ripping. Yes, we went over that at Mike's. Okay. What was was there any reaction from Amy when you announced that you were going to go out and start getting the barns ready? Yeah, she basically just I think she just asked, "Hey, you need some help? Mind if I come out?" Now. This was November 10th, and you mentioned that on November 6th she had had a medical procedure completed. Yes. And you heard uh, Terry describe that medical procedure. Was that pretty accurate as you understood it? Yes, as to my knowledge. I didn't witness the surgery, but I would assume that that was the procedure. And did you take Amy to that surgery that day? Yes, I did. And it was it was an outpatient surgery, I assume? I think that's what you call it, yeah. We went in, it was an emergency room, but that was a surgery, or room off to the side. But she didn't stay overnight now. No, hospital. she did not stay overnight. Okay. From that day, from a November 6th up to November 10th, was she as physically active as she normally would be? No, she spent almost 24-7 in the house. She was just resting, and that's basically all she was. She was cooped up in the house. So when she said, you know, can, do you need some help or can I help, what was your reaction? I said, if you're okay with it, that's fine. So did you all go together out to the hog barn? No, uh, Tristan and I went out first. We we went out first, and then Amy came out. She wasn't dressed yet for chores. She was in her pajamas or yet, and we were dressed already, so we went out first, and, and then she came out a little bit later. Okay. Do you have an estimate as to what time you and Tristan would have went out to the hog barn? I think it was in the... It was after 9, by 9.30, sometime around there. And Tristan described the various 
things that each of you were doing when he testified by video the other day. Was he accurate? Yes, there was a few things we do in addition to what he was saying, but I was doing those jobs, so it makes sense. He was getting those heaters and bit, getting them to the stall, the pens. Yes. Amy was cleaning light globes. Mm -hmm. Is that a yes? Yes. And you were getting these nipple feeders down. Yeah, I was getting the nipple bars down and zip tying them in place, but I was also hanging the rotor heaters at the same time. Okay. At some point, did you notice anything about Amy that concerned you? Yes. What? She got down a couple times, and she would brace herself against the feeder, and she'd kind of give, she was kind of just like readjusting herself. And uh, I think Tristan asked at first, he goes, you okay, Mom? Because he was closer to her. And she goes, I, I just feel dizzy, you know, lightheaded. And uh, then we asked her if she was okay, and she goes, you, you ain't. Is there something we should be concerned about, you know? She goes, no, I'm fine. So all of you continued with your work? Yes, we just kept doing the same thing. Was there any further concern about how Amy was doing? Yes, it, uh, not not every pen, but every every so often she would, she would get down and have to, and it would take her longer to readjust and, she said she was just dizzy. She kept getting dizzy. So we just kept asking her if she was okay. Is sure you, uh, you want to go back in the house? And she goes, no, I'll, I'll just keep going. It ain't that bad. And she indicated that she she wanted to be helpful? Yes, she, she didn't want to go back in. She was She didn't want to feel worthless, I guess. And in good health, this would certainly be something that Amy would be engaged in fully. Yes, she would. It would be no problem. Okay. At some point, did she concede and agree to leave the hog barn? Yes, after multiple times of asking her if she was okay. Uh, we were concerned about her. Both Tristan and I were concerned about her. And, she, and we kind of go, hey, I think, you know, this is... You're going to get too hurt here. You're going to fall off. So why don't you just go in the house? And she agreed? Yes. Reluctantly, yes. How did this thing with the pet carrier come about? The pet carrier was, she didn't want to go at first. She kept saying, I'm going to keep going. I'm all right. And then uh, Tristan actually suggested, he goes, hey, Dad, we need to get that pet carrier out. And I go, yeah, Amy, why don't you go do that? Why don't you go get that pet carrier out of the, out of the shed because we're going to have get the skid loader and water towed out. We don't want to run over them cats. The skid That'd be loader, good, good to help us out. The skid loader and water tow was going to be used to water the chickens. The chickens across the road, yes. And these kittens had been orphaned? Yes, they were orphaned for a while. And what was the pet carrier going to, what was that going to be used to do to you know, well, put the kittens? Well, we're going to use the pet carrier to put the cats, the kittens in while we back machinery in and out. That way we knew where they were at. 
and we could back them in and out, and we wouldn't have to worry about running them over. Okay. So Amy left the hog barn. Yes. Tristan mentioned something about wearing boots in the hog barns. Did you wear special boots in and out? Yes. And what was the, the reason for doing that? We use that so we don't carry disease from one site to another. We we would take our work boots off and then slip like a slip-on boot on just for them hog buildings. Okay. So when Amy left the building, you it was your understanding she was going to go to the shed, get the pet carrier, and do what with it? Oh, uh, we. She was going to put it in front of the shop, and then go in the house. What did you and Tristan do after she left the hog barn? We just continued working, doing doing our jobs, hanging up bars and rooters and washing lights. At any point, did you become aware that Tristan had stepped out of the main part of the hog barn at any time? Yeah, I think I, I seen him take. I seen him go down towards the end to get a drink. Yeah, that's what he said he was going to do. I'm going to grab a drink, quick, Dad. Was he gone very long? No. Did he do that more than once? As he, he stated he did it twice, I would I would guess that would be accurate. Do you have an estimate of how how many minutes or seconds he would have been out of the main part of the barn getting the drink before he returned? As a matter of seconds. Okay. While he was doing that, did you ever leave the barn? No, I did not. About how long did you and Tristan work there before you decided to do something different or something else developed? We worked in there, I'd say, a good hour, if not a little more. I mean, I didn't check the actual time, but I would estimate it was at least an hour or hour and 15 minutes or something. And then we were done with the barn. We had all the pens done. What was your plan once that work was completed? We were going to go in and grab some lunch, and then after that we are going to go to the other barn. So did you go straight to the house? No. Describe what happened next. We went in to clean up, change our boots, and uh, as we were doing that, I, I, me and Tristan were standing in front of the window, at that time, and I go, well, I'm that pet carrying over there, and he goes, yeah, I wonder what happened. I said, Tristan, I mean, we're, and it was in a conversation. Well, what happened? Well, we didn't know. I, well, maybe she couldn't get it out of there. I don't remember which one of us said those words, but we were having a conversation of why isn't it over there. And then Tristan said, you want me to go check it out? And I said, yeah, why don't you go over there and check it out? If she might not be able to get it out of there. Okay. So he went on his own? Yeah, and then he went over to see what happened. Okay. Well, he went over there to see, see whatever, what went out with the pet care. Yeah, if, it, if she couldn't get it out, he was going to grab it.
What did you do after he left the building to go do that? I was just finishing washing my hands up. I had to slip my boots off, slip on the mother boots, and then I was gonna, I proceeded to go outside. What happened when you went outside? I had just stepped out for a second and Tristan yelled. Did you go to him? Not a, I, I looked over and I was kind of like, what, you know? And then he yelled really loud again and then I ran over there. Where was Tristan in relation to the shed? Was he inside, outside? He was yelling out of the, the opening. He, he, had, he was just outside the opening yelling at me. And then as I was running over, he was just standing just inside the door. And did he say anything to you about what was upsetting him? I don't remember him saying anything. He was more or less, Mom. He was just kind of speechless. What did you What did you What did you see when you stepped in through that door? Well, when I stepped in, I initially looked at Tristan and I looked over, and I seen Amy hunched up, face down, laying next to the door, leaning against the door. Did she have this corn fork stuck in her? Yeah. What What did you do? I more or less dove down by her. I, I put my head down. I was trying to, I was like, Amy, Amy. I was yelling at her, trying to get her attention. I didn't know what to think. I was just looking at her, and I picked her head up a little bit, and it was, it was just, Nothing. It was no response. So, what did you decide to do? I, I just wanted to help her. I just wanted to let's, let's go to the hospital. Is there something wrong? Right now, I just reacted. Did you pick her up? I started to pick her up. I went under her, like her armpits, and I was trying to lift her up. And the, that fork handle was jabbing in the the tote out the caging and then I realized hey this ain't gonna work so I, I just set her down more or less a little bit in my arm I just reached over I pulled the fork out I tossed it and I got underneath of her and I told Tristan go get the truck we gotta go and he did yeah he took off and then Try to try to get her up and get her out of bar. Did she ever? <clears throat> did she ever become responsive at all? No. How did you get her placed in the truck then? How did how was she situated? Well, I got her out of the barn and and I got it's kind of hard. She's like a noodle, and I got underneath her and I I carried her like this, and Tristan was standing by the truck and. Get the door open, and, and yeah, I told her get in there, and you got to help me get her in. And and he, he sat down in the seat, and I go, you got to hold her, because I can't get her in there decent. You know, it was hard to get her in the door. And then I I set her on Tristan, and he was holding her up in the seat, and I, it was hard to get her legs in. And then I closed the door, and I. And I ran around the truck and took off.
At any point, did you think about just letting her there and calling 911? I did not. I, I didn't. I, 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 I'm a doer, I guess. I just, I want to help. Let's go. Did you call 911? Yeah, as soon as I got out of the, as soon as I got in the truck out of the driveway, I called 911. And that's the call that we listened yeah. to? Yeah. Did, did the deputies that described what they saw when they arrived, did they accurately describe what was happening there? Yeah. From, yeah. My memories is such a hyped up moment. It's, I, would, I would agree with that. I believe one of the witnesses described you as being excited. Yeah, I was very excited. I, I think I had adrenaline pouring out my ears. I was just, I was in reaction mode. I, I wanted to get her to the hospital. Let's go. Michael Krogman testified this afternoon that he kind of took over with Tristan at your request. Yeah, he, Michael and Tom showed up and everybody showed up and, and, uh, it was just kind of a, everybody showed up at once. And I think it was, it was Michael and a couple of the EMTs, they they said, I better turn him away. You know, he, he better not look at this. So Michael grabbed him and, and took him over there. And uh, and then one of the EMTs says, why don't you go over and comfort your son? So I went over by Michael and Tristan. And, and uh, at that time, I, I remember Telling Michael, hey, he's got he's got uh, blood on his coat. Maybe put your coat over him, you know. And, and Michael took his coat off and put his coat on him to so he wouldn't see that. And then, I, and then I thought of my other kids, and and uh, I was thinking of, oh my God, they're home alone, and I wanted to call mom and go over and make sure you know watch the other two kids and. And then it was just back and forth. I didn't. I didn't really know what to do. And then you, <clears throat> you followed in uh, another Krogman's truck pickup. Followed the ambulance into the hospital. Yeah, uh, Tom was there, and he said, "Well, chop in with me and let's go." When the when you got to the hospital, were you allowed to be in and around Amy, or were they working on her? No, not at first. Uh, they were working on her. Uh, I just remember being in the, uh, the waiting room there, and uh, some friends were there with me. And we were, like, it was Tom and Carol were in there with me, and I, we just waited. At some point, I assume medical people informed you that she had passed. Yeah, I don't know how long later. Uh, I think it was uh, I think it was Gerst came in and told me that, and there was a priest, and they were all there. And By that time, had your family arrived? Yeah, I can't remember honestly. I think I think I think uh, Mike was there. Maybe I just can't remember exactly who was all showing up. At, at that time, is 
I remember there was a bunch of people coming in. Out at the location where you met the deputies in the ambulance, did you, do you remember expressing to them what you thought had happened? I, I remember when I was on the 911, it was like the 911 call said, I said, I, she must have fell on a, fell on a corn fork. And then when I got over there, I, at Brian's, I think somebody asked me again, like, I, I really don't know what happened. I just, I thought she fell on it. I don't know. And you spoke with Deputy Thompson at the hospital briefly. Yes, I think he spoke to me at least two times, yes. And a similar conversation or an explanation of what you thought might have happened? I don't know if I explained what I thought happened. I just explained what we were doing that day. He had asked what what we were doing that day, and then I just said that I found her there. And I don't know if he specifically asked what I thought happened. So you gave him a... And I did what you just told the Yeah, I just I didn't say I, I knew what happened. I just said this is what this is what our my perspective was. This is what I witnessed. At some point, while you were still at the hospital, were you requested to go to the sheriff's office and have a conversation there? Yes, uh, Luke Thompson uh, uh, came up to me and he said, "Hey." Is it okay if we just take you downtown and and uh, explain it one more time? I, the best time I remember, that's what he said. You you cooperated with that. I said, well, if you need me to, that's fine. Let's go. After you left there, where did you go? I went back up to the hospital. He took me back up to the hospital. I I I wanted to be there for uh, Randy and Peggy when they got there. So I waited there till they got there, and and uh, and uh, then after that, I went home. Yeah. Were the kids at home when you got home? Yes, they were home at that time. Your mom and dad there? Yes, my all my family was there at that time. Okay. When. When would have been the next time you had any contact with law enforcement about this? I yeah, it was the, a few days later, I, three days later, four days later. Uh, Sheriff Leclerc called me and said they're uh, wanting to wrap this up. Want to wrap up this investigation? Could you come down and talk about it? He asked how the kids were, things like that. And then I said, well, if you need me to come down, I, I'll get cleaned up and come down. What had you been doing day-to-day -day in between Amy's death and that phone call? Making some plans, uh, looking up some songs and things like that to, for her wake or funeral. Um, I you know, getting the kids ready to go. I put the kids in school right away to keep a routine going, and uh, just 
just making plans. When you got to the sheriff's office, did you participate in the interview that we saw parts of today? Yes, I did. Had you had much sleep in that span of time? No, I didn't. No. Had you heard any rumors around town? Yes, they said the rumors were going crazy. Rumors that that you might be in trouble? Judge, I'm going to object to any rumors that is clearly hearsay and there's no foundation to the context. It would be hearsay. I'll change it. Thank you, Honor. When you started into that interview, were you expecting to be accused of your wife's murder? No, not at all. Were you still apprehensive about being interviewed by the agent? Not at first, but then, then I was after after a little bit. I mean, the length of time, I was like, "What? What is going on?" Okay. Do you believe? Well, let me see. The agent, this DCI agent, this morning said that. In his opinion, you never denied killing Amy. Do you think you did? Yes, I did. And you did so how? I stated that you want me to confess to something I did not do. And in my mind, that's saying I did not do that. Was he giving you much of a chance to explain things? Not at all. I tried several times, and he wouldn't give me a chance to say two words. Just a few more questions, Todd. Deputy Hemseth said this morning that he went and checked the security cameras on the that were on your hog barn. You heard that? Yes, I did. Did you did you know that they were not operating? No, I did not know. You heard your, bro your brother Mike's testimony about what would disrupt those cameras. Yes, I did. Do you believe that that's, in, in your experience, did that type of thing happen? The cats knocked the antennas down? Yes, because the colder it gets, cats go to heat. And there's a heater right below the window. Sun comes up in the morning. They sit in the window. Now, he said, and I, I don't have my notes in front of me right now, but that the one came, well, maybe I do. That the one camera had no activity on it from September 11th to October 29th. Have you checked it to see if that's true? I had never rewound it. I had not checked. And, and one of the cameras had nothing at all on it. You didn't check that? No. Right. Now, he did say that on, the, on November 11th, there was some activity on one of the cameras. Yes. I, Can you explain that? 
it was the day after. I think after talking to family members and stuff, they go, hey, maybe did you have anything on the camera? Maybe they're figure something out if she, whatever, if she's falling over, whatever, in the yard. We didn't know. So I went out the next day. I seen everything was knocked off, hanging down by the floor. I picked it all back up. I got the signal. And I said, well, there ain't, there ain't no use trying to look into that because obviously it was all knocked over. I did not know how long it had been off or whatever. Did you activate it, though, somehow that day? Yeah, when I, I picked the antennas up off the ground and put them back so they receive reception, yes. Okay. But you didn't expect to see anything on there because they weren't? Well, everything was on the ground. Okay. Just a couple more. A couple more questions. Um, at the end of that short conversation that Deputy Thompson had with you at the hospital, I believe he asked you at the end if he could talk to Tristan. You remember that? Yes, I remember that. And I think you made a comment, something to uh, let me talk to him, something like that? Yeah, I believe I did. I did you go talk to Tristan before, before he talked to him? I never got a chance to. I basically I went out and I was going to say, is it okay? But there was a whole bunch of people outside the waiting room and I started talking to them. I never I never did talk to Tristan. And then Luke, Luke came over and he said, is Tristan in there? And I, I go, I think so. And then he went and grabbed him. So you weren't present when Thompson talked to No, Tristan. I was not. Todd, did, did you ambush your wife Amy in that shed that day and brutally beat her and chop chop her up with that corn fork? No, I did not. Do you know who did? I have no idea. Your Honor, I would offer... You call 911 on November 10, 2018, and you pull over because 911 tells you to, right? Yes. And you pull over, and they tell you to get Amy out of the car. No. Or, I'm sorry, to lay her flat. Yeah. I, because they want you to be able to do CPR. You remember that? Yeah. Eventually you yep. do some CPR. Is yep. that right? And just so that we can, where, where we all understand, where is it that you perform the CPR on Amy? I started in the truck. In the truck. And are you in the truck until Luke Thompson arrives? I'm standing or I'm sorry, you're like leaning inside the truck, would that be fair to say? Yes. And is Amy, is she seated in the passenger seat with the seat down? Yes. Or? Okay. So when they tell you to do uh, chest compressions, your half of your body's in the car, and you're, that's what you're doing. You're using your mouth and your hands to do that. I did not use my mouth. Oh, I'm sorry. So you're just, uh, you're just pressing. Where's Tristan at that point? I told him to go stand by the road for when they, to flag them down if they were coming. So as you're doing those chest compressions, is anyone else there initially? No. 
and you're holding onto that phone and you're doing the chest compressions. I had my shoulder holding my phone against my ear. So at that point, the only the only people in the car are you and Amy, right? Yes. And at this point, you don't at all think that Amy's cheating on you. No. You confronted her. You put it to bed. Yes. You, even after the rumors a month later, you still didn't think she was cheating on you because she told you she wasn't. Right? Yes. And even in those months, um, I know you told some people she was really moody. She was having some issues, right? She had a lot going on all summer. So she, she, because she had all the stuff going on in Ankeny, right? Yes. She was going up there. She was visiting a lot. She had her grandma die. Her uncle had problems. You said in those... In those two months, in, the, in September and October, she was gone about 30 days. There was a stretch in there, I, yeah. And she would come and go, but she was gone oh, quite a bit, right? Yes. And things are getting a little bit tense at home. No. So you're not upset at all about this? I was, con I was needing help at home, and I... Right. And well, I guess you could call it some tension, I guess. Well, and you're so, calling Eileen Fuller, Amy's stepmother, around this time, right? Yes. And you're telling her, this is hard, right? I'm harvesting, yeah. I'm yeah. taking care of the kids, and I know yeah. Amy's got stuff going on, but I need some help, right? Yes. And thankfully, you have your family close by, and they're helping a lot. Yes. But still throughout those months where she's spending a lot of time in Ankin, and you're not worried that she's cheating. Right? No. You know she's just dealing with her family, right? Yes. And it, would it be fair to say you almost, like, forgot about the whole thing with Jerry Frazier because you didn't think anything was happening? I, I did not put Jerry in and, at all. And so on November 10th, 2018, when this happens to Amy, you're not at all suspicious that she's cheating. That she's cheating, no. At that point. You are not, you don't have one worry that she's cheating. No. And when you're actually there giving her CPR and you're giving those chest compressions, all you're thinking about is your wife, right? Yes. You're thinking about how you're trying to save her life. Yes. And you're thinking you're doing everything. Cause you, I think you even say on the 911 tape, I'll do anything, right? When they asked me to do CPR, I said I'll do whatever... And, we'll help her. and you mean that. You'll do anything at that point to help save your wife. Yes. And you start those chest compressions, right? Yes. And you heard that tape when we played it the other day, right? Yes. And at that point, what are you thinking when you're doing that? Trying to, trying to get her to come back. You're just trying to save her. Yes. Right? Um, Todd... While you're doing those, do you, did you, I, I know it was kind of hard to hear on that tape, but you're doing those chest compressions. How long do you think you're doing them for? Not very long. A minute or, minute or two. And then I think it's Deputy Thompson shows up. And then yes. I, does he take over or somebody else takes over? He started. Okay. Uh, Your Honor, at this time, can I publish um, a, a clip of the 911 tape? Yes, go ahead. Just for the record, Judge, this is State Exhibit Number 2. 
Now, Todd, here I'm going um, to play you the part where you're doing the chest compressions, and I'm just going to ask that you listen in between the chest compressions, okay? No, John, did you just hear that whisper at the end of that? Yes. And what did you whisper? I couldn't hear it. Okay, I'm going to play it again. Todd, do you whisper cheating whore right there? No. So you don't remember what you whispered? No. Okay, I'm going to play another clip for you. Do you know what you whispered there? No. Did you hear that? So I'm going to play that part one more time. The first clip is 6.53 of that second tape. And this second one is right at 7, um, I'm sorry, 0700. Just try to listen really closely. I just want to know if you remember what you said. <laughs> Right there, do you say, go to hell, cheating whore? No. So you don't hear that? No. You didn't hear at 6.53, cheating whore? You didn't hear that? I didn't hear that one. And at, right at that, after you hear a ping, you don't hear, go to hell, cheating whore? No. I am nothing good judge. Can you redirect? Todd, uh, the state asked you if Amy wanted to quit the hospital after this first affair. Remember that question? Yes. Did she, do you remember her announcing to her friends and coworkers that she was leaving the hospital? Yes. How did she do that? She did a... Facebook announcement, and she even had a a party at a bar. Yeah. When when you and Tristan realized that the pet carrier wasn't up by the shop door. What did the two of you try to figure out, or what did you decide to do, I guess is a better question. We were just talking, I wonder why, why it wasn't there. What? She either couldn't, you know, we were thinking that she either couldn't get it out of there, or she didn't even attempt. So you didn't even go over there in the first place? One or the other. Okay. And I'm, I'm just going to follow some questions along so they may jump around. 
Um, there was a series of questions about where Amy was located when you first saw her in the shed. Um, and they also ask you about your knowledge of, of the advisability of not pulling something out of a person that's penetrated them. You remember those questions? Yes. Were you able to get Amy out the door with the hole, with the fork stuck in her back? There's no way. So you didn't have a choice? No. You were also asked about when you last saw that fork, and you said something about the grass, on the grass, and that you moved it? Yes. In that shed, um, in, have you looked at all the photographs that the state took in there? Yes, I think so. Were there any children's toys in there? Yes. Well, what were there? There was a multitude of stuffed animals and play items on the wagon. The kids obviously played out there then. Yes, they played a lot. And things might get moved out of the shed that shouldn't be? Yes. You told the uh, state that while in the hog barn that morning, you never went to the office. Is that correct? After she left, I never went to the office. Did you did you go through the office when you left, though? Yes. Were you in the office when you and Tristan looked out and, and didn't see the pet carrier? Yes. There also was some questions about the closest point between the hog barn and the red shed. And you t tell us again what that would be. I estimated at 150 feet or so. And that'd be from what point on the hog barn? The very, very southwest tip of the barn by the door that you go in and out to the very northeast corner of the red shed. And when you say the door, that's the door going into the office of the hog barn? Yes. Why did you do the searches on or about, I think it was July 26th, for uh, Jerry Frazier and his wife? I was trying to find a way to contact Christy. Christy being his wife. Christy was his wife. I'm, I was trying to find a way to contact her. So this, if the search related to Jerry, you had Jerry's contacts. I had Jerry's contact, but I... I had no way of getting her phone number. On some of those entries, of those searches that uh, the state asked you, a few of them about uh, thrill of the kill, thrill of the hunt, 
hunt man, uh, thirst for hunt, that kind of thing. You indicated you recognize those. Yes. And, and what did they relate to? There was a quote stated in a movie, and it was actually ended up being Ernest Hemingway quote. And we were trying to remember what it was. Do you remember what the name of the movie was? Uh, I think it was Predators. Did you ever have any doubt about you being the biological parents of your children? No. Do you have any reason to search for those DNA things? No, I have no reason to. questions about you contacting Jerry and his wife in July of 2018. They said, I think the words they used was, did you confront them about the affair? Did you, had you concluded that there was an affair? No, I did not. You had concerns about all those text messages? Yes. When you talked to Jerry, did he convince you that there was nothing going on? Yes. I mean, for the most part, yes. He was very convincing. When you were doing those chest compressions, in the, if, if I understand you correctly, you had put Amy somewhat upright in the seat of the pickup but leaned it back as far as it would go? Yes. So she was in a kind of a, a reclining chair position? Yes. And I, you were holding your, the phone and, and doing the compressions at the same time? Yes. You knew you were on a recorded line with a 911 operator? Yes. Were you, do you believe that you said, whispered, cheating whore or go to hell cheating whore while you were doing CPR? No. Were you frantic? I was very excited. Were you doing everything you could to keep her alive? Yes. No other questions? Any 
crop. search about the DNA is how to tell if a child is yours, right? If that's what it says. And Amy gave birth to your children, right? They came out of yes. her body. Yes. And you also, um, your attorney just asked you about, you didn't really think they were having an affair in May. You were just wondering what's going on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. In uh July. You're just wondering if Jerry and Amy, if there's something, they're talking too much. They were talking too much, yes. So you didn't really think they were having an affair? No. But you did text Terry Stainer. Do you think Amy's acting like she was before? Right? If that's what I text, yeah. And Well, you saw those texts, right? Um, Do you remember seeing them the other day? I couldn't see the screen. Okay. But you, when you sent that text, you were referring to... You took an oath yesterday. Do you understand that you're still under oath? Yes, I do. Okay, very good. Cross-examination. <coughs> Excuse me. Todd, you bought your farm in 1999, correct? My first farm, yes. And that was before you met Amy? Yes, it was. And when you say your first farm, how many farms do you currently have? Uh, I own three and I own part of another one. And then your dad is a farmer? Yes, he is. And your dad's farm is right next to you. <clears throat> is that correct? No. How far is your dad's farm from yours? My dad's farm is two and a half, three miles. And your brother, Pat Mullis, is a farmer? Yes, he is. And where is his farm in relation to yours? Uh, northeast. How, how far? Uh, four to five miles. And then Mike Mullis, your brother that we heard from yesterday, also has a farm. Yes, yes. And where is his farm in relation to yours? We're, uh, they're all within three miles. I think yesterday he said about two miles or so. <clears throat> it depends which farm you're talking about. And even though you have your farm and your dad and your brothers have their farm, you kind of all farm together. Yes. Would that be fair to say? In, yes. And over the years you've continued to purchase land? Yes. And you've worked on your business, obviously? Yes. And this is your livelihood? Yes. And it means a lot to you, correct? Yes. And you spend a lot of time farming. Yes. And you didn't initially have the hog barns, correct? I had older ones. And then you got new hog barns, would that be fair to say? Yes. And when was that? The first one was in 2012. And then when did you – so I know you have two hog bar barns currently, correct? Where I live, yes. And when did you get that second one? In 2014. And then the hog barn business, is this, do you, Pat, Mike, and your dad, are you all part of that? The two at where I live? Yes. I own them. And does Mike also have a hog barn? Yes. And does your dad and Pat also have hog barns? Pat does not. And you've continued to purchase more land, like you said, correct? Yes. And you love being a farmer. Yes. And, in fact, when you, um, you've talked about before about how your dad is so proud of you and your brothers for being farmers. I, I, I've heard him say he's proud of it, yeah. And Tristan was really getting into farming with you, correct? Yes. In the last couple of months before Amy's death? Uh, his whole life. 
And specifically, though, wasn't he taking more of an interest in the last couple of months, helping out a little bit more? I would say in the last couple of years he's helped out more. And um, he would help out on the weekends? Yes. And after school? Yes. And the only people that worked on your farm were you, Tristan, and Amy, correct? No, the younger two helped, too. Taylor and Wyatt. Yes. I'm sorry, Taylor and Wyatt at times helped. Yes, they did. And I know that sometimes you and your you would help your brothers or they would help you. Yes. But you didn't have any hired workers. No. And your farm is your legacy, correct? It's what yeah. you want to pass on to your children. If they want to farm. And well, you you talked to Agent Turbot and you talked about how Tristan told you he wants to be a farmer someday. Yes. And how you're so excited that he wants to be a farmer. Right? If, if he, I told him if he wants to be a farmer, then I would help him farm. And you would, pa you would pass on your farm to Tristan or any of your kids if they wanted to farm? Yes. And when you and Amy married, was it 2004? Yes. And Amy is part of your family trust, correct? Yes, she is. And, you, uh, and your, your whole family is part of that, is that correct? I'm sorry, your parents are part of that? No. Okay, so I'm sorry, so your trust is just you and Amy, is that right? Yes. Now, you um, you have a Gleamer combine, correct? Yes. And you, you have tractors? Yes. And you, I know you told us yesterday you like to hunt. Yes. And you, you like to do all kinds of hunting and fishing. I think you indicated you like to go to the creek or creek, is that right? Yes, with the kids, yes. And back when this happened in November 2018, you had a flip phone, correct? Yes. And you couldn't access the Internet from your flip phone? No. And Amy had a, um, uh, a smartphone? Yes. Where she could access the Internet? Yes. And I, I believe Tristan also had a phone, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Is that yes. a yes? Yes. And Taylor and Wyatt, did they have phones at that time? Uh, Taylor had a phone. And were they track phones? I think Taylor's was. And Tristan's was also a, t a type of track phone where you had to buy minutes or something? Uh, yeah, I think you had to buy a card. Now, we talked a lot about the first affair that Amy had. You remember talking about that yesterday? Yes. And at the time that Amy had this affair, she was working at the hospital. Yes. And you indicated that after this affair, it was Amy's decision to stop, to work, stop working. Yes. She wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. Yes. And she just wanted to be there for the kids. She wanted to be there for the kids and us. And you. And all the kids were full-time in school at that time, correct? No. Um, who was not? Wyatt. How old is Wyatt now? He now is nine. Okay, so when he was five, he wasn't in school? He was three. And where, was he in preschool or any type of schooling? Not at that time. What, when did he start going to school? I think he went when he was uh, four. I think he went to pre. You, you talked yesterday. Amy loved to go shopping. She loved to go out. She loved to be social. Yes. She loved to go out to lunch. Yes. She loved to golf. Yes. And you encouraged all of these things, you said. Yes. You wanted her to get out there and do these things. If it made her happy, yes. And... Um, it was, you indicated yesterday, it was Amy's decision to leave the hospital. Yes, she has to. And you know Amy met the person that she had the affair with at the hospital, correct? 
I don't know if they met at the hospital or not. Okay, so you and Amy were so open about your relationship, right, after this happened? Yes. So you, you told us yesterday, you told Detective Turbot on November 16, 2018, that after you guys reconciled, mm -hmm. it was picture perfect, essentially, right? Yes. It was a great relationship. Yes. You used the words over and over how open it was. Yes. And you never talked to Amy about how she met this person that she had an affair with. She either met at, a at the hospital or at a, a boating event okay. that was organized together with people at the hospital. So okay, so somehow she met him through the hospital. Yes. So now you do remember that. Yes. Now, let's talk about November 16th, 2000, or I'm sorry, November 10th, 2018. That morning you said that you, you, would, you just wanted to do some chores around the house, which was normal. Right? Can you ask that I'm again? I'm sorry. On November 10th, 2018, the day of Amy's murder, you wanted, in that morning, you got up to do chores. Yes. And you were with Tristan. Yes. And you and Tristan went, I think you said, off-site. Yes. And you came back. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is that a yes? And when you came back, Amy was doing a puzzle. Yes. Amy, at that point, seemed fine. Yes. And, in fact, Amy had plans later in the day to go shopping, correct? Yes, she did. She was going to go with Taylor and buy some snow boots. Yes. And then Amy, you said it was Amy's decision to come outside. She asked to come out and if we needed help. She wanted to help. And uh, you and Tristan went out first. Yes. And you guys started working around the barn. Yes. You were doing some things. that, yes? Yes. Tristan was, uh, I know, bringing heaters, correct? Yes. And then Amy started um, helping as well. Yes. And you indicated that Amy got dizzy. Yes. And Tristan saw it. Yes. And then you saw it too. Yes. And at that point, you were really worried about her. I was concerned at that time. Yes. Right. Obviously, this is your wife. You care about her. Yes. You didn't want anything to happen to her. No. And you knew that she had this procedure four days ago. Yes. And... At that point, after the first time, you didn't tell her to go inside. I asked if she was okay. And she said yes. Yes. And she wanted to stay out there. Yes. So she again started working. Yes. And at that time, she gets dizzy again. Yes. And I'm sure at this point you're extremely concerned about her. Yes, I was concerned. I don't know if I was extremely concerned. I just asked if she was okay. Well, you were so concerned, you told her to stop working. I asked if she needed to go to the house. And she said yes? She said no. I so then you, that's when you said, you know what, I just want you to stop, but first, let's go get that pet carrier. It was after two to three, um, three or four times of asking her. Okay, so just so that we're clear, at least twice yes. you know she's dizzy. Yes. And probably you just said three or four times you asked her to go in the house. I asked if she was okay and to go to the house. Okay. And if, if kept, she needed to, if, if, she, needed if to. she could continue. And she kept insisting she just wanted to be out there and working. Yes. And then at that point, you say, well, actually, yesterday you said, Tristan said, hey, you know what, Mom? If you can help us, or you can help us go get that pet carrier. Yes. So Tristan sends Amy to get the pet carrier. He didn't send her. He asked. Hey, I'm sorry. It was, it was his a idea. conversation between all of us. 
I'm sorry? It was a conversation between all of us. Oh, between all of you. So who asked Amy to go get the pet carrier? Who asked Amy? It was both of us, really. Okay. Yesterday you testified, right? Yes. And yesterday when you testified, you said Tristan said or Tristan asked Amy to go get the pet carrier. You recall that, right? He asked her first, and then I asked her. Okay. Second. So first Tristan asked her, then you asked. Yes. And the pet carrier is is pretty big, right? What's big, I guess. Well, okay, you heard Tristan's testimony, correct? Yes. And uh, when you t Tristan said that he probably estimated it was 15 or 20 pounds. He said it was 15 pounds. Okay, would you would you agree with that? I would say it's be 10 to 15 pounds, yes. Sorry, just one moment. I'm showing you a state's exhibit 16 that's been admitted to evidence. This is the pet carrier, correct? Yes, it is. And that's where it's lo that was where it was located in the red chat. Yes. And you saw a lot of pictures yesterday and the day before about the red chat from the red chat. Yes. And those were true and accurate depictions of the way that the red chat appeared on the day of Amy's murder. Yes. And when you walk into the red chat, it's a pretty narrow space, correct? Yes. When you and correct me if I'm wrong, when you walk in, you turn to the left. I'm sorry, you turn to the left, and that's where Amy's body was found. Yes. So you walk in, and you saw pictures yesterday. You couldn't get the door open, right, because it was frozen shut. Yes. So you walk in, and if you go straight to the left, there's a very narrow uh, pathway. Yes. And that's where Amy's body is found. Yes. And she's found on her hands and knees. Yes. And she's found with a torn rake sticking out of her back. Yes. And then if you go past where Amy's body was found, you turn right. Is that correct? Yes. And there's almost like a, with the crates in there, it almost is like a, almost like a path. Would that be fair to say? Yes. And you turn right, and if you look in this photo, uh, Exhibit 16, you kind of see once you turn right that little uh, passageway. Would that be fair to say? Yes. And there's an auger there. You see that at the bottom of this photo. Yes. And when once you make that right turn and you're looking down into the right shed, what's on your right-hand side? As soon as you turn? Yes. Uh, I think there was chemical totes. And what's on the left side? Uh, there was some jugs and junk there at first, and then there was some title things. And then, so where is this pet carrier from once you turn right after you after you found Amy's body? Is it on the right side or the left side? After you turn, it would be on the left. Okay. So this picture here would be looking down, and this pet carrier would be on the left. I think you just said that. Does that make sense? It's, I would be on the other side looking okay. this way. And this also isn't... Um, you indicated that there's items on both sides, right? Yes. And it's also, um, it's not a huge passageway or a huge area, is it? 
Depends where you're at. Okay. So where the pet carrier is, how wide is it? Between the pet carrier and the wagon, probably, I don't know, five or six feet. Okay. And this is where the pet carrier was that day, correct? Yes. And this is uh, the photograph, you know, that the police took this photograph after Amy's murder. Yes. And this is the specific pet carrier that you and Tristan together asked Amy to go and get. Yes. And you know that she had that procedure four days prior, correct? Yes. And you actually took her to that procedure. Yes, I did. And you brought her home from it? Yes. And you actually um, you actually signed your name on her discharge papers, correct? Because she was being discharged to you. Yes. And it said on there that she's not to carry anything over 10 pounds, correct? She was recommended not to carry okay. anything over 10 pounds. But you felt at that point she was fine to go and get the pet carrier, right? You, meaning she could carry something over 10 pounds. You thought she could handle it. She, she said yes. And you thought she could just take it and, you know, bring it out of that passageway and into that narrow area. I hadn't been over there for a couple months. But you knew where it was. Yes. And this is your property. Yes. This is your shed. Yes. You've owned this shed for how long? As long as I've been there. So since 1999 when you bought this property. Yes. And it sounds like you care a lot of, you, or you spend a lot of time on your farm, so you know where stuff is at on your property. Yes. Now, it's at that point, or I'm sorry, you see Amy leave. And you and Tristan are in the barn, the hog barn. Is that right? Yeah. And you don't see Amy for how long? As long as it took to finish, about an hour. Okay. So during that time, or I'm sorry, after that time, you said that you realized that the pet carrier wasn't by the shop. Yes. And who's the one that says, oh, man, the pet carrier's not there, you or Tristan? I think I commented that it wasn't over there, and then Tristan said it isn't. And then whose decision was it? I believe yesterday you said that Tristan said, I'll go check. He asked, do you think I should go check and see what's going on? Okay. So he went. He didn't go to check on Amy in the house, right? No. Because your assumption would be, that if it's an hour's time that Amy would be in the house, right? Yes. That she would have gotten that pet carrier or couldn't get it and went back in the house. Yes. But it was Tristan's idea to go and look for Amy. We had told her that if she couldn't get it, it would be fine than go in the house. Okay, so you told her it was fine. Did you tell the police that when you talked to them after this happened? No. So then at that point, you're, you're taking off your boots, right? Yes. And Tristan goes to the red shed. Yes. And you hear Tristan scream for you. He yelled, yes. Yelled, I'm sorry. And you run over there. After he yelled the second time, yes. And you run over there, and you go into that red shed, and you see your wife on the ground. Yes. And how? What? just explain to us the position you saw Amy in. She was more or less hunched up in kind of a, I guess you'd call it a fetal position. Was she but, on her knees? Yes. And were her hands down like you just indicated, kind of 
the palms are down, if, if you remember. I don't know if I remember how her hands were sitting. Okay. It was, it was, she was hunched up with her jacket hunched up. And I think you told okay. And you see you see this corn rake sticking out of her. Yes. You have your phone on you. Yes. You don't call nine one one right away. No. You immediately try to pick her up. No. I look I looked and I turned her face towards me to see if she was breathing or alive. And I was talking or asking her name, Amy. And she's not responsive at all. No. And that rage is still sticking out of her. Yes. Now, just give me one second. Uh, I'm showing you uh, State's Exhibit 21. Is this the area that you actually saw, Amy? Yes. So there's like a, a rag. It looks like a blue or gray rag on the bottom there. Do you see that? Yes. In relation to that rag, where do you see Amy's body? It was actually where the doors come together, where the where the white-looking rag was. Oh, I'm sorry. So <clears throat> past that blue rag, you see the white rag on the floor. Is that correct? Yeah. And then to the left of that, there it does look, uh, there's like almost like an opening between the doors. Yes. And that's where you saw Amy's body. <clears throat> she was right on the... Where the doors come together. Where's her head? Her head is down right on the edge of the where the edge of the concrete. And is her which way is her head facing? Which is way it, is her head facing? Mm -hmm. Yes. More or less straight down or slightly out? Is it is it facing towards where you enter the barn or away from where you enter the barn? Or the red shed, I apologize. Her head was towards the opening where you go in. And the rake is impaled in her back. Yes. And it's sticking out. Yes. And it, it, it has a handle, but it's a broken handle. Yes. So what is, where's the, where's the handle of the rake? Which direction is it going? Is it going towards those crates, or is it going towards the door, or where is it at? Towards the crates. So at that point, you lift up Amy's head, and that's when she's not responsive. She's not responsive. And Tristan is right there. Yes. Your 13-year-old son. Yes. And Tristan is about to pass out, correct? Not at that time. I was aware. I didn't look at him. Okay. Well, when, you, when you're interviewed by John Turbot on November 16, 2018, you do tell him that at this point you look at Tristan and you think Tristan's about to pass out. I thought um, he was about to pass out after I was carrying her out. Okay. So it wasn't until that time you realized that. Yes. And so Tristan's standing right by you. He's behind me. Yeah, behind you. You then decide to lift Amy up. I pulled her away from the door. And so how did you pull her? You just did you push her pull her towards you? No. She was leaning up against the door right where the doors come together. I had my hand on her face and I reached over to her right side. I pulled her away from the door slightly to see if I could get her up. And you weren't able to get her up? The handle, when I pulled her over, contacted the 
chemical tote. So then at that point, you decided to take out the rake. Yes. And I think you indicated you had to kind of manipulate it, pull it out. Not really. Not really? No. Um, so it was pretty easy. It just popped right out. It seemed to pull right out. Even It's on a curve, right? You didn't have to... You didn't have to do anything but just pull it right out. It pulled straight out. And then you, I think you just threw it, right? You just threw it. I had it in one hand. I had her in the other. So you're holding the corn rake. Then what do you do? I threw the corn rake, and then I got under her armpits So lift her up. You actually pick her up by her armpits. Mm-hmm. Is that a yes? Yes. And what do you, where, does, where does her body then make contact with your body? In my chest. So you're holding her. Where's her face? Right in this area, right in my chest. And is it almost like you're bear hugging her and holding her at the same time? Is that fair to say? In a way, yes. And at that point, you don't yell to Tristan to call 911? No. You don't call 911? I don't know if he had his phone. Uh, but you had your phone? Yes. And... Then, is that when you tell Tristan to go get the truck? Yes. And where's the truck located? I don't remember exactly where it was. I told him to go get it. Okay. And so, while Tristan's doing that, what are you doing? I'm in the process of getting her out of the shed. Getting her out of the shed. Are you, does Tristan pull up the truck? Yes. And he pulls it right up to, like, the door of the red shed? No. Where does he pull it? He pulls it. There's a U-shaped driveway, and then there's a small driveway that was behind, that connects the red shed to the other driveway. I, it's hard to explain. So how far would you say from the red, red shed he pulled up? I say 30 feet, 40 feet. So you're carrying Amy for how long would you say? It took a lot of manipulation to get her out, and then I picked her up, and I was carrying her like this in both arms. So how, you're asking time? Do you know how far, how long? A minute, two minutes? Maybe a minute. I'm estimating that. So then Tristan pulls up the truck, and he gets in the front passenger seat. He comes out. That's when he... Which shook up. Okay, that's when you think you you thought maybe he might pass out. Yes, he was. He just saw me carrying her, and, and I told him to open the door up. This is very traumatic for both of you. Yes. I mean, so he gets in the front seat. Yes. In the passenger seat. Yes. And it's at that point that you put your wife on top of your 13-year-old son. You lay her yes. body on top of his. Yes. Okay. Nobody's in the back seat. I know it's a truck. Nobody's back there. There was nobody else. And Amy's bleeding, correct? I didn't see her bleeding. Okay. You pulled that corn rake out. Yes. And you said yesterday you're a doer, right? You're a doer. That's why you didn't call 911. That's why you pulled that rake out. Yes. That's what, uh, And you, um, I mean, being a farmer, I'm sure that there's always things that happen, right? You are always mm-hmm. having to, you're a handy, you're always trying to... I'm sure the kids are getting injured on the farm doing stuff, right? You're a good dad. You have to make sure that you're there for them and helping them. 
Yes. And you know, have you ever heard that you should never pull something out of someone when they when they have something in them, a knife or a fork or anything like that? I didn't, never heard that. You've never heard that? No. You, you've never seen that? I know you said yesterday that you love to watch all these shows and you guys like to watch all these things about ancient tribes and all that stuff. You've never, in any anything that you've ever watched, ever heard that if somebody's impaled with something, you shouldn't pull it out of them. I didn't recall it at the time. So you may have heard it, you just weren't thinking about it then. I wasn't thinking about it at that time. And so you didn't see Amy bleeding at that point? No. So you lay Amy on top of Tristan, and then you run to the front, I'm sorry, the front driver's seat. Yes. You start driving. Yes. And your goal at that point is to get Amy to the hospital. Yes. I mean, that's all you're focused on. Yes. And you want to make sure she's okay. Try and get her help, yes. How far, what hospital were you driving to? I was going to try to go to Manchester. And how far is that from your house? Fifteen minutes. It's... You said yesterday, after you pull out of the the driveway, that's when you think, oh, now I'm going to call 911. Yes. And you pull your phone out of your pocket. Yes. You call 911. Yes. Now, let's talk a little bit about this corn rake. You saw it. I know you saw it in court here, and you've seen it before, because it's your corn rake, correct? It was on the farm when I bought it, yes. And so you've had it since 1999? No. Oh, you just said it was on the farm when I bought it. It was on the farm across the road when I bought it. Okay. So what, do you know what year that was? 2012. So you've had that rake since 2012. Do you know how the handle got broken? No. And is that is that corn rake always left in the red shed? No. Uh, where is it usually at? It was in the barn across the road. It was in the shop. Before the time that you see it sticking out of your wife's back, when was the last time you saw it before that? The last time I saw it, I think, was on the grass. And when would that have been? I'd say earlier in October. Okay. I was filling up the combine fuel. Within a month before Amy's death. Yes. So you don't know where it was. You didn't. You yourself didn't know it was in the red shed. Uh, I think I did. You did on November 10th. You knew it was in Amy's. I'm sorry. On November 10th, you knew it was in the red shed. If I had to think back, yes. So I thought you just said a minute ago that the last time you saw it was on the grass somewhere. It was on the grass, and then I had to move it, and I put it in the red shed to get it off the grass. Okay, I'm sorry. So in sometime in October, you saw it on the grass. Yes. And you moved it inside the red shed. I set it inside the door. And when you set it inside the door, we talked about when you walk in, did you set it on the right-hand side or the left-hand side? I don't remember, but it was probably the right. And you just set it there. I put it inside the door. You didn't, like, hang it up or put it in a certain area or on top of anything? I don't remember. Now, are there any other type of rakes in that red shed? Not that I can recall. Um, What else is in, I know we talked a little bit about it, in that red shed there's the augers and there's a lot of crates and stuff like that. Is there anything else that's in there? There's the sweep augers there that you see. Um, There's a wagon with fertilizer tanks on it. And when you say a wagon, what do you mean by wagon? 
just to explain. It's an old hay rack with the the side the top cut off and it's got fertilizer tanks on it. Now, while you and Tristan were in the in the hog barn, you're working and Tristan's working, right? Yes. And the hog barn is about the size of a football field. Yes. And Tristan's thirteen, he knows what he's doing, right? He yes. knows how to help you farm. Yes. And you're you're doing stuff and he's doing stuff. Yes. And you're not listening to any music. No. And it's just a November morning when you guys are are working in there just like any other day. Yes. You don't hear anybody outside when after Amy leaves the hog barn. I did not hear anybody outside. You didn't hear any trucks pull up or cars. I heard the only thing I heard was maybe a few semis going down the road. That, because uh, the road is is pretty close right off. When you turn into your uh, farm, the road is you, you obviously turn off the road, correct? Yes. And you kind of have a, I know we looked at the picture yesterday, you kind of have like a, not a full circle driveway, but it kind of goes in a half circle. Would that be fair to say? Kind of? Sure. Yes. And, and that's the, the road onto your farm. Yes. So you can hear you can hear some semis going by. Sometimes. And do you remember that day if you actually heard semis? I wasn't paying attention. And you didn't hear, though, anybody drive onto your driveway or drive onto your property? I did not hear. You did not hear anybody walking outside? I don't know how I could. You didn't see anybody, right? How could I? Well, you, there's some windows out of the office, right? I wasn't in the office. Okay, so at no point you went to the office? No. And you don't hear, how how far is the red shed from the hog barn that you were in? Depends where you're at in the hog building. Okay, so tell me, can you approximate? From the very southwest corner of the north hog barn to maybe the northeast corner of the red shed, I would estimate it at 150 feet. Okay, so that's from the furthest. So if you go the furthest corner away from the red shed, that's 150. Is that, no. is that right? Okay. So I'm sorry. The closest point. The closest point you said is 150 feet? I would say. And the farthest point is what? If you have to guess. I mean, it would be 150 feet. Plus a football, football field. field. Yes. And... At no point do you hear Amy screaming. No. You don't hear any signs of any struggle. No. You hear nothing. No. Just you and Tristan working. What we're doing, yes. Now, after this happens, you go to the hospital, correct? Yes. And at the hospital, family starts showing up. Yes. Your parents show up. Those family and friends show up, yes. Okay, so your parents, your sister Lynn shows up, correct? Yes. Uh, Bob and Eileen, Amy's dad and stepmom show up. Yes. Eventually, Peg and Randy show up. They're coming from a little bit further. Yes. And um, then there's also, I, I think there's some more family, too, showing up. 
Yeah, Jeff showed up. And There's um, friends, like you said, some friends are showing up. Yes. Um, Amy works at the hospital. Some people are stopping by that she, that she used to work with. Yes. And, um, and, and everyone keeps asking you what happened. Not everyone. Well, you remember talking to Bob and Eileen about what happened, right? Yes, what happened. Yes. And you, you told him, I don't know, she fell on a corn rake. I said, I, re I really don't know, Bob, what happened. Okay. You never said she fell on a corn rake? I don't recall the conversation. You said it in the 911 call that we listened to, right? Yes, I did. You said she fell on a corn rake, right? Yes. You also said I sent my son to go find her, right? Yes. Now, that same day, you're at the hospital, and uh, Deputy Thompson asks to talk to you for a little bit. Yes. Remember that? And there's a video of that, right? I've never seen it. You've never seen it. But you remember talking to him. I remember talking to him twice. And it's um, shortly after Amy is pronounced dead. I... Yes, I think so. I don't know the exact, I don't know the exact okay. time before or after. And he just wants to talk to you about what happened. Yes. And you start telling him about your day. Yes. And you tell him about how Amy was dizzy. Yes. And how you sent her, or you sent her in to get the pet carrier, you, everything that you said today, right? Whatever I said at the time, yes. And you insist several times that you, you keep telling him that Amy was dizzy that day. Do you recall yes. that? Yes. And that he asks you, Deputy Thompson asks you, were you with Tristan the whole time? And you say, yep, we were together the whole time. You remember that? Yes. And at that time, you do say a couple times, I, I, I don't know. I want to know what happened. You say that, right? Do you remember saying that? Yes, I do. And you say, man, I want to go back. I want to go back to the farm and see for myself how could this, how, how did this happen? You say that, right? I was, I was at the sheriff's office, yes. Well, you also say it to, to Deputy Thompson, don't you? Initially at the hospital? I don't remember. I was asked multiple times by. And at that time, you don't say anything about, wait, I have cameras. Let's go see if we can catch something on camera. You don't say that to Deputy Thompson, do you? No. Because at that point, you don't know that they're not working, right? No, I did not. Because according to you, those cats probably just did it. That's what After, I think. Afterwards, yeah. So then in a, li a little bit later, you talk to Sheriff LeClaire. You recall that the same day? Yes. And with Sheriff LeClaire, Luke Thompson is also there from the, the deputy, or Deputy Luke Thompson is also there. Yes. And when you're talking um, to them, again, you keep talking about how Amy was dizzy that day. Because you're telling, you're telling what happened. Yes. And you're asked if anybody else was on the farm or if you heard anybody, and you said no because you didn't, right? Yes. And you again say that you were with Tristan the whole time. Yes. And this, do you, do you, if you remember, I know it was a really difficult day for you, but do you remember how much time from the interview with Deputy Thompson to the interview with LeClaire and Thompson? Well, I remember Luke asking me two different times at the hospital. Okay, that's right. I'm sorry. You talked to him twice. And then he asked me if I could go downtown. So would it be within a few hours, would you say? 
Yeah, it was within, I would say, an hour. So then you go, you actually go to the Delaware County Sheriff's Office. Yes. And during that interview, you never say, oh, wait, I have cameras. Go, let's go check them. I never said. And obviously your mind's racing. You're trying to figure out what happened, right? Yes. But you never think about that. At that time, I'm sorry. At that time because it was inside the shed. And, well, but you said yesterday that the next day then you thought of it, right? You thought, oh, I'm going to go check those cameras. Right? And you went to go check them because your wife was just had a horrible accident and died. Yes. So you thought of it the next day. Yes. Even though there wasn't a camera on the red yet. When I talked to family, when I got home. Oh, they reminded they, you. They said, I wonder if, if something will come on, would be on the cameras that would show maybe some sign of anything. And that's when you go and you go into the shop and you see they haven't recorded. Right? I see the antennas on the ground. Everything was off. And then, not on the screen. But then you make sure, make sure you kind of get them working again. Yeah, I got them up on the window, so. Now, obviously, this is a very traumatic time for you. You guys have Amy's services, and you're you're grieving with everything, right? Yes. And um, several days go by, and you still think this is an accident. Yes. Because you can't think of another explanation. Yes. And on November 16th, 2018, you still think it's an accident when you go to the police station and talk to Agent John Turbot? Yes. And you still thought it was an accident, even though you found her on her hands and knees, face down, correct? Yes. Even though a corn rake was sticking out of her back. Yes. You're still just thinking, I can't believe that this happened. I can't believe she fell on a corn rake. That's what you're thinking. I had no idea what happened. So on November 16, 2018, you speak with John Turbot. Initially, Sheriff LeClaire is in there, right? Yes. And then, and then it's just you and John. Yes. And you're talking about what happened. Yes. And that whole first part, you guys are just talking about your life, your farm, Tristan, your kids, how you're such a great dad, everything like that, right? Yes. And at the beginning of that interview, Agent Turbot asks you how things are going, how is your marriage? And initially you say, great, right? Because they were. Yeah. And then after a while, he says to you, all right, let's talk a little bit more about your marriage. Tell me the good and the bad. Is there any bad? And you do, you tell him about that first affair. Yes. And you tell him that you found out about it and that, you know, you guys reconciled. Yes. And you tell him since then things have been great. Right? For the most part, yes. You tell him that. Uh, you guys were able to work through that, go to a little bit of counseling, and move forward. Yes. And that was when Amy quit working at the hospital, and you, you you said because your family was really important to you, you wanted to just go keep going, right? Yes. So then Agent Turbot asks you, anything, since then, since that affair, the last five years, how have things been going? And you say, you keep telling him, great, they go, they're great, Right. I don't remember what I said, but yeah. Well, you I watched just, the, I, 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 yes. You watched the clip yesterday, yes. right? The first clip yep. started with him asking you, how have the last five years been? And you say, great, we're so open. It's been awesome, right? Because it has been. Yes. 
And he says to you, anything else, anything you need to, and, and, any problems, anything, and you say no. Right? When we resolve our problems? Right. He says, in the last five years, anything you want to tell me, you say no. Yes. And it's at that point that Agent Turbot brings up Jerry Frazier and doesn't, he just says to you, hey, do you have a Jerry Frazier that works on your farm? And you say, yeah. Yeah. Because he does, right? He, he, was, he would come, he would help with the hogs and everything. Yes. And John, Agent Turbot goes on to ask you, how's your relationship with him? You say fine, because it is. You told us that, right? Yes. And then he asks you about Amy and Turbot, or I'm sorry, Amy and Jerry's relationship. And you say, good, it's business, not, nothing, nothing to cause me any concern. Yes. And he even, he, he, he asks you at the end of that conversation, before he walks out of the room, anything else I need to know about Jerry Frazier? And you say no, right? Yes. Which was not the truth, right? Because you didn't tell him at that point about the fact that you confronted Amy and Jerry about the affair. You didn't bring I, it up. I didn't bring it up that You didn't bring it up then. He leaves the room, right? Agent yes. Turbot, sorry. And about three minutes later, he comes in and gives you some water. Yes. And it's at that point that you do, as soon as he walks in, you say, you know what? I want to tell you something. There was something with Jerry and Amy, right? Yes. And that's when then you tell him that... Um, that, you know, initially you say, that, you know, I was a little bit uncomfortable, but it wasn't a big deal. But then I told them, you know, keep it professional, right? Yes. And, and that's what happened. Yes. You just wanted them to keep it professional. Yes. Now, you and John then go on to talk about, about this, and, and you say you put that past you, right? Yes. And, and that's, what you, that's what you told us yesterday. You put this all past you. Yes. There's some rumors that come out in August, but you weren't concerned about them, right? Not after Amy and I talked, no. Right, because you felt confident that Amy wasn't doing anything. Yes. Now, back to this interview on November 16th. Up until that point, for six days, you're dealing with Amy's death, right? Yes. And you're taking care of the kids. Yes. And you're arranging pretty much everything for her services and just obviously did. I know your family's helping you, is that right? Yes. And um, obviously this 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 is a tough time for you. Yes. And you're really upset. Are you upset? Would it be fair to say you're upset, obviously? Yes. And, I mean, you're at that point you told me you still think it's an accident because you had no other explanation. Yes. So Agent Turbot tells you that this is a homicide, correct? At some point, yes. You never even thought about it being a homicide at that point. i got to remember how he said it. but. Well, at some point he tells you, we think you're responsible yes. for Amy's murder. At yes. some point he says, you killed Amy. Yes. And he does tell you that at some point the medical examiners have ruled it a homicide. Right? Yes, at some point. And that was not out in the news yet. You did not, that report was not released yet. So that's the first time you're hearing it. Yes. And you're, you didn't really respond. Would you agree with that? I didn't know what to think. Right. 
but some but agent Turbot just told you that somebody came on to your property and killed your wife and you didn't respond. I was dumbfounded. Right. You couldn't even believe it, right? Yes. Because at this point, for six days, you're thinking it's an accident, and now somebody tells you that somebody came on and killed Amy when you were yards away, right? Yes. Your, your wife, Amy was your wife, right? Yes. Somebody that you swore to love and protect, right? Yes. And you feel, I mean, this is somebody you care about. You have children with her, obviously, right? Yes. And... Somebody came onto your property right under your nose and killed her, right? That's what you're told. That's what I'm told. And, and you know that's true now because you heard all the testimony in this case, right? Yes. You know that somebody took that corn rake and stabbed Amy in the back two or three times. Yes. You now know this wasn't an accident. Yes. Later that same day, John Turbot is at your house with the other agents and officers, and they're executing search warrants, right? Yes. And he asks you to take him around again to kind of show him, to go through your story or what happened, right? He has to see buildings, yes. And again, he says to you, Todd, this was a homicide, and you don't respond at all. Do you? No. You're still in shock. That, would that be fair to say? I was in shock and I didn't, yeah. And he even says the word to you, we want justice for Amy. Do you remember him saying that no. to you? Oh, you don't remember that. And you at no point through that conversation that day when they're executing the search warrants say, say, say anything about any suspects? Or, I'm sorry, give, it, give them any ideas of who might come onto your property and kill Amy. I don't remember them asking me that. No, they wanted to blame me. At no point did you, during your interview with John Turbett, did you tell him anybody that you think would maybe want to kill Amy? No. And as you sit here today, you don't know who would possibly want to do this to Amy. No. And yesterday, I think you said Amy was social. She was all over the place. She had a lot of friends, right? I wouldn't say she has a lot of friends. Okay, so she yeah. has friends that she, she has does friends. things with. And, but you had no, you, you still, as you sit here today, can't think of any person that would want to do this to your wife. No. Any person that would know that she was in the red shed at that exact time. You can't think of any person. Can you? Right now or then? Then. Could you think of anybody? I couldn't think of anybody then. Now, you, Carrie Stainer was one of Amy's friends. Yes. And, oh, sorry. And you were friends with Carrie, too. Yes. You liked Carrie. You communicated with her. Yes. Amy was close to her. And went out with her and did things with her, right? On occasion, yes. You saw those text messages that um, came in through through Amy that you sent her, sometimes talking about Amy, right? Yes. You you told Terry about um, your suspicions about the affair with Jerry Frazier, right? 
I told her about text messages. Told her about text messages, and you also uh, talked to her a little bit about those rumors that came out sometime in August, right? Yes. So, Todd, we talked about this a little bit. Let's go back to your flip phone. You have a flip phone that you cannot search the Internet on, right? Yes. And your, you, that is, your Gmail account is toddmuller76 at gmail.com. Yes. And Amy had her own Gmail account, correct? Yes. And I believe it was mullisrn at gmail.com. Does that sound about right? Yes. And that iPad is yours. It's the farms. It's the farms. Well, um, there's a laptop at your home, correct? Yes. And that laptop is used for the family. It kind of stays generally in the kitchen or living room area. Yes. And then the kids, um, there was three Kindles that were recovered from your house, correct? Yeah, I think so, yes. And then Amy's phone was recovered. I think you gave that to the police. Um, And then this iPad, you recall that? You recall the police asking you about this iPad? That day when you ex- when they were executing the search warrant? They asked for all computers, yes. Okay. So they actually ask you, hey, do you have anything else? And you volunteer. You say, oh, I have an iPad, right? Yes. You say you do. And you say it's in your tractor. I said it's not mom and dad's. Okay. And you, you're there. Your sister Lynn is there, right? Yes. And you're talking to Agent Turbot and Travis Hemsath from the Delaware County Sheriff's Office? Yes. And you, um, they ask you if you can get them in the iPad. Do you recall that? Say that again. They ask you because you're. Yes, sorry, yes, they ask me. If you can get it. And actually, it's your sister Lynn that calls your brother Mike and says, hey, will you, br- will you bring us the iPad? Yes. So a few minutes later, Mike comes and he hands you the iPad. He hands it to the deputies. He, he hands it to the deputies in front of you, right? Yes. And the officers ask you if that's your iPad, and you say, yeah. Yeah. And you say that um, it has a wireless, or uh, sorry, cellular service, so you can use it when you're, um, when you're out on the farm. If I'm out in the field. Field, I'm sorry. Um, because, you, so you don't have to be connected to Wi-Fi. Yes. And, and they even ask you um, if, if anybody else uses it, right? I don't know if they asked me that or not. They asked you that, and you said, sometimes the kids do. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I can't remember exactly what I said. Okay. And you heard your brother Mike testify yesterday that he remembers one time searching for for something on that iPad. That's what he said, yes. And he knew the password. Yes. And after this iPad is handed over to the agents, Travis Hemsath asks you for the password. Yes. And you don't give it to him right away, right? I hesitated because I had never been through this before. Right. I didn't know if it was... Right. No idea what was I had no one idea what was going on. And you look at your attorney, Bob Sabers. Yeah, I looked at him and... Yes. And he, he says, go ahead and give it to him. Yes. And so you give it to him. Yes. And did you actually set up that iPad? No. Um, who would have set it up? Amy. So she set it up with your Gmail account. Yes. And you're you're familiar. You have an actual Gmail account. 
that she set up, yes. Okay, but you you sent emails from it. Up you. So you understand? Do you understand how Google works? Do you know how that works? No. Well, so on your iPad you have a Google a Google app, right? Or you can go to the Google website. Yes. Because so, yes. we'll get into it, but some of yeah. those searches are yours, right? Yes. You, I mean, you admit there yes. are times you use that iPad to search things. Yes. So you know that you go and you can either go to the app or you can go to like Safari and go to Google through there. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, you also have a way on your iPad to get your Gmail, which is just your email, right? I usually went on Safari, okay. put Gmail in. And then my email would. Then your email would pop up. And when you wanted to do a Google search, would you go to Safari or would you hit the Google app, if you remember? This is a button. Okay. But every time you went on that iPad, you didn't have to, um, you didn't go to settings and connect your Gmail account, right? Settings, no. No, because your Gmail account was already set to that iPad. I guess. And, 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 like you said, some of those Google searches were yours. Yes. But sometimes Amy would use your use your iPad. She would use the iPad, yes. Okay. Um, Amy would physically use that iPad, right? Yes. Like to search things, obviously, yesterday, like that, that wedding stuff and bride stuff. I mean, like you said, you didn't do that, right? No, I did not. Pinterest, none of that stuff. No. That wasn't you. Um, but there are lots of Google searches. I know it's like 80 pages. You said yesterday you briefly went over those Google searches, right? Yes. I think when your attorney asked you, you said that you started looking through them. And, um, but, I mean, if you look through them, and I know you look through them briefly, there's lots of ones that you know you did do. Yes. That you actually typed in and searched things. Yes. And things about hunting and combines and bows and all kinds of things, right? Yes. And um, in, on July 26, 2018, there's a bunch of searches about Jerry Frazier, Jerry Frazier's address, Christy Frazier, and you did those. Yes. And that was right around the time that you confronted Jerry and his wife. Or, I'm sorry, confronted Jerry and then called his wife, Right. Yes. And on that, on that, the day, a couple days before that, um, there's a search for menopause symptoms, and you told us you were looking up about whether or not you thought Amy was premenopausal, right? I don't remember when I looked that up. But you do remember looking it up. Yes. And you, and I know I asked you that you have a flip phone, so you can't do internet searching on your phone. No. So your primary, when you would look things up, it would be on that iPad. That or on the computer. Or on the computer. Whose Gmail account was connected to the computer? All of ours. Okay, well. We, I, I don't know whose. You don't know whose was. Okay. I'm not. So it would be. Um, but you, all right, sorry. So in. So. On December 25th, 2017, there's a search for was killing more accepted centuries ago. Did you do that search? I think Amy did that. Okay. So you remember? 
I we think we were looking it up together after we watched uh, we watched a documentary on on, on December twenty fifth. So you guys were watching um, a documentary on Christmas. Yeah. Do you remember that? Okay, and then. Now, I know yesterday you were asked about the search, uh, boys being raised like pussies. You remember that? Yes. And you said you didn't do it, right? I didn't do the search, no. You think Amy did that one? We had talked about it, and so, I'm assuming she so you're did assuming it. She did. You don't know if she did it. I don't know. Um, and it was because somebody at Wyatt School was like, was Wyatt, somebody from Wyatt School was picking on him? I don't know if he was picking on him, but it was... It was, he was getting his money somehow. Okay. Which is also known as like a bully, right? Yeah. Now, on January 5th, 2018, there's a search for characteristics of cheating women. Did you do that search? No. Okay. Do you know who did that search? No. You have no idea? No. And just a Around that same date, there's a search for what did ancient cultures do to infidelity. Did you do that search? No. Again, you don't. You have no idea who did that search. No. There's a search on here that same date. Um, 16 facts about cheating women. Did you do that search? No. And right right around that time, did ancient cultures kill adulterers? Did you do that one? No. Now, um, let's see. A couple days later, there's search for thrill of the kill. Do you remember that one? Yes. And... Um, Looks like there's a few visited sites, and then after, in that same bunch, there's search for a thrill of the hunt. So did you do that one, too? Yes. And then go one more, and it's actually typed in, once you hunt man, will you always feel the thirst? Did you write that, too? Yes. Now, yesterday your attorney asked you about this series of searches that talks about being a biological, being the biological father of their children. You recall that? DNA. I'm sorry, DNA. He asked you some questions about that. And actually, the first search of that bunch is how to make sure your kids are yours. Right? If that's what it says. And then there's then after that it's biological father things like that. That's what your attorney showed you yesterday. Does that does that kind of rem- you remember those questions? Yes. So you you don't remember doing those searches either. No. You didn't do them. No. No. When do you learn? about Amy's, or I'm sorry, when do you suspect Amy's having an affair with Jerry? Or are you worried about their relationship, their relationship being more than just business? When I thought it was odd about Jerry was mid-July. Okay. Now, you heard, you've heard testimony from Jerry that his affair, that he did have an affair with Amy. 
Yes. And you were probably pretty shocked to hear that when you heard about that eventually. Yes. And you heard testimony that that affair started in May 2018, right? That's what I heard. That's what you heard. He said June, so. And on May 10th, 2018, there's a search for what happens to cheaters in history. Did you do that search? No. How about the search right after that? Once a cheater, always a cheater. Did you do that search? No. And right after that, typed in what happened to cheating spouses in historic Aztec tribe. Do you remember that one? No. And right after that, killing unfaithful women. Did you do that search? No. And the last one of that bunch is a visited site. Punishment is 18 months for killing cheating wife. Did you do that one? No. Do you know who did it? No. Now, yesterday you did talk about, you remember the searches on your iPad about um, swimming and buoyancy. Yes. So you remember that you're out by, and I, I apologize, I think you called it crick. Is that the right wording? Or we were in the pond. The pond. And that's the pond that you guys built on your farm. Yes. And that you and the kids are out um, swimming, and it kind of comes up as a joke, like, about about people drowning? No. Okay, what, I'm sorry, What? can you just tell me briefly about how that came about? We were all swimming in the pond. I think real, I think like a rock. The kids, the boys were floating, and they were going amongst themselves, who floats better? And I made the comment that some people don't float as good as others. Okay, so then who actually physically typed in, are some people less buoyant than others? I did. You did. And then after that, you visited some sites, and then um, including bo something about relax and swim buoyancy. Does that sound about the right? The boys and I were looking at that, yeah. So you're looking with, and uh, so this says here July 13, 2018. So you're looking with, are you with ta uh, Wyatt and ta Tristan? I apologize. Are you with both of them? I think I was with both the boys, yeah. Are you with Taylor, too? Taylor might have been there, too, at home. So. At this time, Tristan's 13, Taylor is 10 or 11? She'd have been 11. And then Wyatt would have been how old? Eight. So you're with your 8-year-old, your 10 and 11-year-old, and your 13-year-old, and you're looking up buoyancy and people sinking and swimming. Actually, Tristan would have been 12. Oh, sorry, 12. That's when you're, so that's, are you guys searching this out when you're by the pond, or is it when you're back home? We got back home. Okay. Now, In July 21st, 2018, there's some searches for, can my husband read my deleted text online? Did you do that search? No. So, I know there's some other ones around there about text messages on phone and stuff like that. You didn't do those? No. Now... confront Amy about the affair and Jerry about the affair at the end of June, right? No. I'm sorry, July. I apologize. At the end of July. Does that sound I right? I asked Amy. Um, she was texting a lot one day, and I asked her, well, 
Who are you texting? And does she tell you, Jerry? No. But you actually, at some point, do look at some phone bills. Yes. And you see that there's a lot of text messages between them. Yes. And then that's when you say something to Jerry. Yes. And you say something to Amy. Yes. But you're, to like you told us, you're totally satisfied after that conversation. I was a little unsure yet. So you're a little bit unsure, and then a month later, you hear that there's rumors going around. Right? After I called Jerry, I talked with Eileen, and then I called his wife. Right. A couple of days later, I put it to rest. You put it to rest. And then about a month later, it might not be a full month, but sometime in August, you hear that there's rumors out there. Amy told me there's some rumors. And you didn't believe them. Did you? No, I asked. We talked about it, and I asked, what, where would that have started? And so then you talked about it, and again, you felt satisfied. You moved on. Yes. Now, on August 9th, 2018, there's some Google searches for how long can you survive without food. Did you do that search? Yes. And same group search search for how long you can survive without water. You did that one, too? Amy and I did. Okay, and um, search for what lost what lost an extreme cold and no fire, which is the best way to survive. Was that you or Amy? It was either one or the other. We were helping Taylor. Okay. Um, searched for heat stroke symptoms in that same yes. group. Then you went to some websites and then searched for proper way to treat heat stroke. Yes. Then a few minutes later, correct treatment for second and third degree burns. Yes. Then keep going. What to do with a large open chest wound. Yes. That was either one of you. You can't remember. Right. Yes. And then the last one in that kind of group is um, skin cold, clammy, pale pulse, rapid, shallow breathing. Yes. And you guys were doing that because you were helping Taylor with some type of project. Is that right? She's taking her hunter's safety course. Okay. So these are all things that came up then. Those questions on the test. And so, and where did she take that course at? Online. So you, so you do, or it was either you or Amy helping. Well, you were both helping her. Yes. Now let's talk about November sixth, twenty eighteen. So that's the day of Amy's procedure, right? Yes. And this is is a somewhat simple procedure, right? What you knew of it. I know you don't know that much. Yes. So you took Amy there and brought her back. We voted. We went to the hospital. Okay. However long it took. And you remember that day Taylor was asking you some questions about Amy's surgery. She was asking all sorts of questions. Okay. And is she asking you or Amy or both of you? She was asking me because Amy was, I think, in the bedroom. Amy was in the bedroom. And so she's... Um, and even, I mean, Amy came home, and she was, she appeared to be okay, probably tired, right? Yes. And the kids, well, they were able to still talk to her, right? Like, she's probably laying, hanging out in bed, but she's not, like, not available for them to talk with her. Yes. And Amy's both an RN and a medic, right? Registered nurse. Yes. She was a medic at different times for, is that the Delaware Fire Department or? Earlville. Earlville. And it's your testimony that Taylor asks you about Amy's surgery. 
Yes. And what did you know about Amy's surgery? You knew it was for, like, her lady parts. Would that be fair to say? Sure. Yes. Uh, did you know what it was called? DNC or something like that. Okay. And did you know, did, did Amy at all explain the procedure to you? Not really. Okay. So you knew she wasn't. So who actually types in organs in the body? Is that you or is that Taylor? I think I did. So Taylor asks you about Amy's surgery, right? Yes. And you tell her it's a DNC. I don't really know. Or is it, what do you say there? If you do, you remember? I said it's it was. Mommy had a procedure done. They had to knock her out. And. and Amy never indicated to you that any of her organs, she wasn't, she wasn't having surgery on any of her organs, was she? No. But when Taylor asked you about it, you decided to search for organs in the body, right? She was asking a lot of questions. So, but she was asking you questions about Amy's surgery. Yes. That had nothing to do with organs of the body. Yes. But you wanted to show her a picture. She asked if if they had monitors on her, she asked, what did they do? Did they cut her here? Did they cut her there? Okay, so then you, you didn't search, like, pictures of the body or anything else. You searched organs of the body, right? Yes. And four days later, your wife's organs are impaled with a corn rake. Yes. After this happened on November 10, 2018, you weren't arrested for almost three and a half months, correct? Yes. And obviously the kids are staying with you. You're taking care of them. Yes. I know there's a period of time that you actually stay at your parents with the kids, right? Yes. But you, obviously but you're at that point, you and your family and Amy's family is all they have because Amy's gone. Yes. And... Um, Every day you're picking them up from school, taking care of them, with the help of your family. I know your family, correct? Yes. Judge, can I just have a five-minute break? Um, I just need to connect the speaker, and I just want to make sure, because I just have a few more questions. Yeah, we can take a real short break and give the jurors the chance to use the restroom. But folks, remember the admonition. We'll keep this short. Report back to the jury room in five or ten minutes. All right, my recollection was we're going to go ahead and get the uh, state's last witness on the stand. After the direct examination, we're going to have some discussion, so we'll take a break after that. Is that uh, correct recollection? This one here? All right, this one. All right, so stay ready. This one's super. Is that ready? Yes, sir. Let's bring in the group. Jury is present and seated. Everyone else present and seated this time. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning and welcome back. 
Hope everyone had a nice evening. We're going to pick up where we left off in just a moment. You know, though, every time you leave the courtroom and you come back, I ask you a question or three questions, three-part question. It's exposure, discussion, or research related to the case. If any of you have done any of those three things, been exposed to any reports about the case, did any research about the case, or discussed the case with anybody, including amongst yourselves, please raise your hand at this time so that we can discuss it. Let the record reflect there are no hands. Again, thank you all very much. Um, as promised, we will pick up where we left off. I'll ask the state to call your next witness. Senator Paul Joseph Carey. Joseph Carey. Mr. Carey, good morning and welcome. If you'll come forward, sir, be sworn wherever you're comfortable. If you'll face me and raise your right hand. Thank you. Do you swear or affirm any testimony you give in this proceeding? will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you God. Thank you, sir. If you'll follow the bailiff around to the ramp that leads up to the witness chair. Please watch your step. When you get to the chair, go ahead and have a seat. Make yourself comfortable. That microphone does adjust. Good morning, Mr. Carey. If you could please tell the jury your name and spell your last name for the court reporter. Uh, good morning. Joseph Carey, C-A-R-E-Y. And, uh, Mr. Carey, where do you currently live? I live at uh, University Place, Washington State. All right, where? I'm sorry, Washington State? Washington State, yeah. The University Place, where is that? Uh, it's outside of Tacoma, right by uh, where I work. It's a uh, joint base, Lewis McCord. And who do you live with there? My wife and two kids. And you said you're in Air Force Base. Where are you currently employed? I'm in the United States Air Force. I work at Joint Base Lewis McCord. And what do you do for the United States Air Force? Uh, I work for NORAD, um, the Weapons and Tactics Office over there. Um, I'm a Master Sergeant working there. How long have you been with the United States Air Force? Uh, since 2001. <coughs> Do you know the defendant in this case, Nicole Martin? Yes. And how do you know her? She's my sister. Or is she your is she a full sister or a half sister? A half sister. Do you all share the same mother or the same father? Same mother. So the victim in this case, Marion Deans, was your mother? Correct. And how old are you now, Mr. Carey? Thirty-six. Thirty-six. Um so there's a there's a significant uh, age difference between you and your sister. Yes. Do you, do you know about how many years apart you all are as far as age? Uh, about twelve years. 